and welcome to the Crash Chords Podcast. New season, same podcast. I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And uh, we're going to jump right into my pick, the first of the year-ish. Um, you know, we, we had a little bit yes. of a crazy yeah. week last week. But yeah, do, do this is the official this of the season of the new season. No, we don't do that. We actually do the summer season. Yes, the anniversary season. And but so this is the review season. This is the review season. To clarify, and we always alternate who starts off the year, and so it is my turn again. And like the last time I started off a year, I'm bringing us a pillar of the music community. Ooh. Um, we are doing the latest release, 57th and 9th by Sting. Ah. <laughs> I'm glad that you continued. We clearly already know. We've done a week's worth um, of work on it. But um, this album was important for me to pick, much like Paul McCartney, because, and it's funny, it's an artist who I liked better when they were in a group. But, like, I love the Beatles, obviously. That's not a secret to this podcast or our audience. And I, I too, also love the police. I mean, like the Beatles, they kind of defy genre at moments in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my favorite songs by them were actually Synchronicity and Synchronicity 2 because they, they were this odd blend of new wave and pop and rock and roll. And, you know, I really kind of related to a lot of their stuff. I really got dug deep into a lot of their stuff. And so, you know, I thought it was important for me to pick this record because... Like picking Paul McCartney, I wanted to start with a pillar of the music community, someone that we would all know, someone whose music we're all familiar with, and that, for better or worse, we're not going to get a steaming pile, essentially. Whether we love it or don't like it or think it's only okay, like we did with, with that Paul McCartney album, at least the music will be of a quality that we don't have to worry about like turning our nose down at. Yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with this as your first pick of the year. I believe I actually said it in your last first pick of the year already three years ago now, and that was new by Paul McCartney. Yes. I had said that you keep us grounded. Me and John <laughs> have a tendency to float off and branch off, float away, and you pull us back down and remind us of the greats and remind us that very often sheer numbers like sales, platinum hits, that sort of thing, they really do matter. And I was also a pretty big fan of The Police growing up. They were part of my very limited cassette tape collection. <laughs> I had uh, Synchronicity and Regatta de Blanc, I believe, on cassette, and I was listening to them around the same time that I was listening to Men at Work, which in each case was nearly a decade after each band had written most of their music. And I listened to them on my Fisher-Price tape player and microphone. My first Walkman, really, because I actually used to walk around with it. In fact, when I got my first portable CD player, which did not have anti-skip protection, it was quite a bit less portable because I'd have to find that flat surface, pop a squat, try not to breathe, so it was kind of a downgrade, really, from the Walkman thing. Anyway, uh, the obvious similarity between the police and Men at Work is that they were both a part of the new wave scene, as you said, and I would still safely put them there uh, above all of those other influences. I mean, yeah, pop rock, but, like, that's new wave was that early 80s brand of, of pop rock. I absolutely love new wave as a genre. I think mid-2000s indie rock really owes it a great deal, and it's a natural successor to new wave in many ways, minus a couple things that probably got developed a little bit more in alt-rock than in indie rock. But anyway, it all started with New Wave, and I like it because New Wave gave this this, this like intense personality-driven pop-rock structure just enough depth and creative surrealism without leaping over the experimental cliff that it was just this wonderful movement to me. Kind of ephemeral, but definitely unique. Blondie, Talking Heads, Men at Work, and The Police were my go-tos, and The Police would not be The Police if it wasn't for Sting. And one of Some of my favorite things about The Police, too, is like the song Every Breath You Take... Or- early on lauded as this love song because of his tone of voice and the way it's played, but it's actually a stalker's point of view of hunting down somebody. And I thought that was very interesting to take a song that 
in tone, and I've brought this up before when we've talked about tone of songs, mm -hmm. the song that sounds romantic but is absolutely not romantic, showing the absolute megalomania of the subject in that song yeah. is really fascinating to me. And yeah. the police was always very smart about that. They always had very clever kind of twists and turns to their songs. Yeah, so it's kind of lyrical surrealism as, as well. Or lyrical, playing off of what your expectations and probably what was more traditional in, in pop songs at that time. But yeah, Sting is responsible for most of that because he wrote the vast majority of their material with a very few with very few exceptions. And so I guess that makes him the it guy, not to put down the two others because they were an integral part of the police, but he must have been heavily inspired by his surroundings because it's true that the police, in my case, the police were my favorite version of his artistic career. And I'm not alone here and I don't pretend to have any unorthodox opinions in this department. I think a lot of people have been longing for the police throughout Sting's solo career. But yeah, they've been broken up since 1986. I think it's time to get over it. And Sting certainly has had a flourishing solo career outside of that. Well, and they have gotten back together to play on tour several times yep. since then. Um, but yeah, no new albums. And I would agree. I mean, I'm a fan of Sting's solo career and The Police, but I would say The Police is the better material. But it's a little bit apples and oranges because Sting plays very differently on his own. And his songs become more about the lyrical content, sometimes the emotion of it, less about... Because a lot of The Police songs were just fun and catchy and upbeat. Oh, but they had a darker a darker edge to them. Of which I think is what I was describing more in that new wave thing. And his, his stuff progressively got less new wave, I think, yeah. as he aged. And also just the times. You yeah. know, new wave isn't really... It's nice to reference, and it's still there in doses in his work, but it's not the whole thing. Right, you can tell that there are hints of it still throughout his discography, but f for sure he's trying to separate himself from it too and kind of define his own sound. Yeah. But if we're talking about music that's taking a long time, you also gotta remember this album is 12 years since his last one. It mm -hmm. is Sting's yeah. 13th, I believe 13th solo album release. Yeah. Pretty much throughout like the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, he was releasing a lot of stuff. Pretty yeah. clumped together. But yeah, this is the first one in more than a decade. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's not relevant anymore. Of because Sting as a figure, like I described him as the it guy of the police, and he continue being an it guy long after that because even for folks that like aren't really head over heels for his solo stuff to this day it's like Sting walks on stage either to play or even just for a cameo or an interview and there's this little gasp however minor it's just that little bit of oh, it's Sting yeah <laughs> it's he's, Sting he's got he's got stuff to say and people listen yeah there's this air of you know, I don't know if it's mystery or whatever. It's essentially what Bono wish he had that Sting actually oh. has. Well, that's the thing, because he has stayed highly visible for his activism mm -hmm. as, as aged rock stars are wont to do. But yes. Sting, I think, has been a lot more successful about it. I mean, I think success could be argued based on your perspective, but you know. Well, anyway, we're not here to talk about Sting's activism. We're here to talk about 57th and 9th, which was released in November, but was recorded over just a three-month period over the summer in Manhattan, very close to the intersection referenced in the title. Yeah. Apparently, he crossed that intersection every day as he went to the studio. Uh, but also, it, uh, Sting has been a long-time New York-bound artist. Yeah. He's lived here for many years. Even though I, we probably should have said at the top of the show, he is English. The yeah. police were English. Um, but yeah, he's definitely been across the pond many times. And kind of like John Lennon was associated as being more of a New Yorker toward his later life. Mm -hmm. But uh, So yeah, it's a little bit of that. And I think it's also, you know, he crossed the intersection every day to go to the studio. And even though it's pretty standard, like, midtown intersection. I think, you know, I, like most New Yorkers, have probably had to go in that vicinity once or twice, and it's sort of like if it's a part of your commute, then it becomes a part of your soul, in a way. Yeah, so even sure. though it's a pretty, like, standard intersection, I'm sure it must have affected him around the time that he was writing this music. Yeah, slight tangent. Um, 
recently in New York, the Q Line just finished their 72nd and 2nd Avenue stop, which... Um, the 72nd Street, 86th yeah. Street, and 96th Street, and the other half of 63rd and Lexington that was first started and finished in 1989. But now we have the whole thing. And Don't uh, try to one-up me on subways. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't. I was trying to make an anecdote about that I've been at that new station several times in the last couple of weeks because I have two doctors on that side of Manhattan, mm-hmm. and coming out into a brand new train station is still kind of awe-inspiring, and especially when you do uh, it multiple times and you're going going that same route multiple times throughout a few weeks, like the commute you were yeah. saying, it really does kind of draw you in. And it, kind be- of... it becomes a part of you. And yeah. it, it can transform the mundane into something that has a lot more meaning in your life. Honestly, I cannot picture a new subway station in New York. Like, at this point in my life, I can't picture something that looks new in a subway station. You know what it is? go to that one, because it looks brand new. Architecturally, it has, like, that 21st century, second decade feel. It's the same kind of thing they did in the revamped South Ferry Station and in the new 7 train extension, 34th Street, Hudson Yards. It It basically is that, but a lot more artwork on the walls. There's a lot of mosaics with tiles, and now we're getting way sidetracked. Uh, Can we just do a subway podcast? (laughs) Sure, we'll start a spin-off podcast. At least least his title got me into uh, that other major interest of mine. That's fair. Um, but bringing it back to the album, I think this was also an important choice for me, besides grounding us as a podcast. I really do like going back to the pillars of the rock and music community, just because sometimes some consistency is nice, and a lot of times with newer artists that have been around for a while, like Taking Back Sunday, which we did, or Blink-182, there's a lot more disappointment in that, although Taking Back Sunday wasn't the case. But, you know, with long artists with longer careers, and like John said, this is his 13th solo record, you can kind of expect a little something, and I like that. I like having that expectation. I think at the very least, it's important to just check in on people who were, you know, writing some of our favorite music at one point in time, you know? I would agree. Despite his age, uh, he really wanted to turn this into something big, and he actually had uh, another little idea behind this, and then we'll begin with the album, that the length of the recording was never meant to be very long. Like I said, it was only about three months, I think, over Mm -hmm. the summer, and Sting wanted it that way. I think he thought that the album would lose something if, like, the, the like the intensity would be lost if he dragged it out over this prolonged, you know, recording process with his producers and everything. He just wanted the ideas to flow like tap water and record it exactly the same way. So, and, I mean, also, he has one or two topical songs on here, which I suppose might have lost some of their punch if he had waited. Yeah. Um, and that makes sense, too. I mean, honestly, if you can poop out, and I'm not saying this is what he did here, but if you can poop, poop out full-fledged songs in a short par- period of time, why not? Well, you know? it does seem like maybe it's a case of anti-perfectionism, but then again, it's really hard to qualify how long art needs to take I know, in yeah. the process. Like, you know, some ideas can just flow, and then other other stuff simply can't be rushed. Yeah. So it, it's there really are no answers. When the album's out, it's done. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, this one is done, which so, allows us to begin. Yeah, and speaking of beginnings, let's talk about the first track. All right, track one, I Can't stop thinking about you. So this starts like I'd expect a Sting album to start like, for the most part. I kind of felt the same way. Like <laughs> it, 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 It's almost like we've talked about in other intro tracks that they are just the perpetual sound of the artist constantly happening. And this song doesn't really have a lead up or an intro. You're just kind of thrown into it, and it's exactly kind of what you would expect. It sounds like indie rock for the most part, but also because of everything I said before, it's sort of like a 20th, 21st century new wave. Yeah. It's newer and wavier, supposedly. <laughs> 
supposedly. But of course, I can't say that 100%, because if I'm being truthful about this first track, I have to say kind of up front that this is one of my least favorites on the album. So it's not indicative of some of the stuff that we're going to get later. My first impressions, unfortunately, of the very beginning here was that it was a little bit watered down for what I've seen from him. Just like this eighth note bass pattern, a steady haze of hi-hat, and then that Killers-esque rolling guitar patterns. This is that indie rock stuff I mentioned. But it's all in B-flat minor here, and I did enjoy one thing for the intro, and that was that clinching moment that followed the intro, just like 12 seconds in, where the bass and the guitar strum out this F-sharp minor chord, which is interesting because it has that A in there, so it sort of gives it a slight harmonic minor feel temporarily, although we do swing back to B-flat minor for the verse. But for the moment that we do ring out on that one chord, it was a really nice palate cleanser from the intro into the verse. Um, as we go into talking about the verse and the lyrics of this track, I feel like we should first mention Sting's vocals, which, I mean, he sounds for the most part like he's always sounded. The, the delivery feels a little flat at this point, uh, more conversational, which is okay. I mean, he's done that before. Um, but there's only one verse, and then we get pre-choruses and choruses throughout the rest of the song. Uh, lyrically, not super innovative, and and the structure feels kind of formulaic, even in the instrumental delivery. Besides that moment that Are Steve we- just talked about, it, we kind of get the rest of the cards on the table at that point. The True. instrumentation doesn't vary from that point on, really. True. Well, you just went through a laundry list of things, so I'm going to start <laughs> at the first in your list, and that is his vocals. Yeah. Uh, his vocals are, I thought they were pretty safe, because they were kind of like following the rolling guitar pattern yeah. in the background, which, it was narrow range, and they were kind of like short, syllabolic things, but also kind of muffled, and that was a strange effect. And I also thought they were very so, ever so slightly doubled, perhaps with himself, in the background. Round. But it was a weird muffled style that I don't often hear from Swift. As a singer who's usually very belty, he wasn't here at all, no. which surprised me a He's bit. Turned that down quite a bit. His inflection is he- really off, and that's that's the first thing I've got about this track that uh, I've been very quiet so far. And the reason <laughs> for that is I was actually really disappointed with mm. this track as an opener, because you can you can really sum up three inflection styles on this piece itself. In the verse, he goes low, 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 forceful. In the pre-chorus, he starts high and just descends. And in the chorus, it's just a blanket inflection of just belt, 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 drop on that last syllable. And it sounds almost robotic. Like, this is not the sting I know. This is not what I would want from someone, like, in general. And from sting in particular, it just feels... It feels a little bit weak, like his vocals just can't do anything anymore. It's like I said, the short, like, syllabolic nature of his singing, it's very metered and very... It can kind of feel like it's running itself into the ground. But now I wonder if there if there's reason for this. So let's move on to another thing that you mentioned at the top, and that was with lyrics. Lyrics here... I, I believe, and there's a lot of this album that can be easily discerned because there's a lot of stuff that was in the liner notes and it's just out there Sting, all on the Sting internet. has been on a promotional tour for it and has been touring the country Yeah, um, and is starting, I think, a brand new tour um, as we're talking. And so he's spoken to the press quite a bit, and so there are uh, tidbits that you can pull for almost every track on yeah, record. So whereas normally we would try to like decipher and see what he's talking about here, but we kind of know. I mean, it most of it is essentially an analogy for someone who is writing. Now, I assume it yeah. could be any form of writing. It just said a writer, but probably because of his profession, it would be music writing. And I find that a lot of it is just looking for the muse, looking for that one thing. Verse one, white page, an empty field of snow, 
my room is 25 below, this cold man chasing ghosts. A road lies underneath the buried posts, dogs search under forest, we scour the empty streets. The fact remains, until we find you, our lives are incomplete. Our lives as in artists. All lives, artists are incomplete until we find that one single thing. And I do kind of like the analogy of going through snow, going through, you know, a little bit of a little bit of a Jack London kind of feel. You're out there in the middle of nowhere and it's cold and it's barren and you're looking for that one little gleam of light uh, somewhere in the distance, that little lantern, that cabin, <coughs> and that's your idea. And that's the thing that's going to kind of push you along and give your life meaning. And that is some great imagery going on, but it's the only verse we get on the track, and that's what's bothersome. He really just seems to expel all of his poetry right there in that first verse. Ah, but I might disagree with that. The chorus that is the crux of the track, I can't stop thinking about you. I can't stop wanting you this way. I can't face living without you. I mean, he's really not being eloquent about it. He's, well, the thing is It's that, sort of a generic pining sensation. Yeah, based something. on that chorus, you would think it was just a relationship, you know, you just or, well, not a relationship, but that some person you love and you want to be in your life, but they're not for whatever reason. Insert. <laughs> and it's, it's also the delivery that really gets to me because, like I said, with the pre-chorus, going from high to low... Do I hear laughter through a veil of snow and ice? That's that's the drop-off he's doing with it. He's he's going high and forceful and then kind of petering off at the end. That could be used to great effect, but when he follows it up with a chorus, it's just, I can't stop thinking about you. I can't stop wanting you this way. Like, that's the monotone I feel coming through with the him. The vocals do not evoke the analogy, and I agree with that. I would argue, though, that this song does, well, I, I wouldn't say suffer, but definitely has a similarity to Every Breath You Take in the fact that if you looked at this as a relationship, it does seem kind of obsessive stalkery like Every Breath You Take is, but it's clearly about the writing process, and I think the poetry being front-loaded and the rest feeling a little repetitive can be indicative of writer's block and not feeling creative. Whether that's intentional or not is argue, you know, you could argue, but no, I think that's actually a really good interpretation of the song because there are also little things here where it seems like just the moment where he's about to get his idea, then the songwriting tends to get a little bit better. I mean, just to describe uh, from the musical angle, like how okay. I felt about this progression. I pretty much was pretty clear on the intro. I was pretty clear in the verse that this wasn't really my cup of tea. And then we go headlong into the into that pre-chorus, which actually arrives kind of late. Well, not late, relatively late. 40 second, 42 seconds in, that's your pre-chorus. We swing from that B-flat minor feel to E-flat minor. And then from here, it's kind of an uplifting pop chord progression, which is, well, it goes hand in hand with the lyrics. Do I hear laughter through a veil of snow and ice? Where could you be on such a lonely winter's night? It feels like maybe it's possible that something's around the bend. I still wasn't enjoying this section musically. It was minor one, major six, major seven, minor one. It's just that lonely winter's night, but there's there's something there at the end. And his vocals do change here. They get a little bit huskier, and I did like that about it. But then the chorus. We modulate, sort of, again, because we kind of have gone from feeling like this is in B-flat minor to feeling that it's in E-flat minor, and now, suddenly, it this feels like a modulation because it's so block-shifty. This is C-sharp minor, and at this point, I was not digging this because it didn't feel like the song was flowing. Again, could that have something to do with the fact that he, he's having trouble really solidifying this idea? It's all there in the lyrics, but, but enjoyment-wise, I have so far no context for the feel of this song. That is kind of bothering me. And so 
I was actually expecting another B-flat minor verse at this point. Without following along with the lyrics, I was like, this thing is gonna loop on itself. And I was actually dreading how awkward that transition would be. But he doesn't do that. We get another pre-chorus, which wasn't nearly as clunky, but still not the greatest pivot, kind of backtracking ourselves, sort of undoing what we just did. However, the pre-chorus this time does not play out in the same way. From that major six chord, we go to a minor four chord relative to E flat, which is quite an ominous shift. And the vocals are quite nice here, the church bell tolls. And this was that crowning moment. It was the only moment for me, though. I agree. Especially, especially when it shows up a third time. The pre-chorus shows up a third time. It was much less impactful because it feels like it kind of got a little neutered when everything else kind of joined in with it. It was less singular of a moment. But the first time we get, Somewhere a church bell tolls. I know you're close. The scent's still warm. Then the trail turns cold, cold, cold. And as he's ringing out, cold, cold, cold. That moment, it goes that, back was to the great, that was a great moment that was upset by the chorus, that was sort of disheveled by the chorus. Because the trail turned cold, and he lost the idea, so we have to go back to the doldrums of boring songwriting. But, I mean, but I'm, I'm just thing. saying, I'm not, had... I'm not defending, because I've been totally on the opposite side of this before, where I'm just like, it doesn't sell it, that doesn't make the song good. But it really does follow along pretty much to the letter. Like, yeah, the moments that are good it. are the moments the character gets his ideas. So you could make an argument that it's an artistic choice, but I'm inclined to agree also that this song doesn't break any barriers, it doesn't wow me in any way. I don't know that I necessarily disliked it, but I feel like saying I kind of nothing did is worse well, well, no, and so after my giant tangent there, to get back to your original point, which was the fact that the following ver uh, uh, pre-choruses and choruses, as they kind of go back and forth, back and forth, and we never see another verse, I guess in the long run, maybe that was problematic. Like, I I'm not saying that a B-flat, that B-flat minor uh, verse would have like saved the song in any way, but it, it was strange to feel like there was a lack of progression there that we had evolved to a kind of a questionable thing, and then we just stayed in that department. We didn't evolve further. But it brings us to an argument that we also had on that Paul McCartney record that I picked three years ago. It's, is this intentional? It's kind of hard to believe that Sting would make a song like this that there wasn't some intention behind it. But that said, again, I'm not really engaging with it much either, but I have to believe, at least somewhere, that there maybe is some artistic liberty and choice here. I mean, it's hard to say. Well, I'm, the only I'm, thing is that we get that moment one more time. Like, we have the pre-chorus later, which, uh, after another chorus, like, this was actually the true modulation in the song. The yeah. other was we're kind of shifting chord areas, but this was the true modulation where we go up to F sharp minor and this is kind of a classic end of pop song trick and Sting has often done this before where the final you know round is just a little bit raised a little bit more emphatic and as a result the the final cool transition that he did in the middle of that pre-chorus was you know to B minor now which was a similar effect but it was just a different flavor because it was a little bit more raised and come to think of it it was accompanied with this sort of strange alien-esque whirring guitar in the background which was the only added touch for the song but I don't know whether the final, you know, modulation really made me feel any differently about the song. It definitely didn't for me because, mm. honestly, the conflict is supposed to be in the chorus here. I feel like that there is some, some desire to overcome an obstacle, but the conflict is not being portrayed in that chorus. That chorus is, should be 
angsty. It should be heated. It should be angry. It, just the idea of mm. chasing it. He's chasing the dragon here. He's chasing that drug of the muse. And I'm just feeling more like he's, but he's all, gone complete downer but, on it. But all of those emotions that you're mentioning are kind of the fallings of a young artist. I feel like he wouldn't write something angsty or bitter like that because he's older. He's wiser. So it feels kind of lifeless instead because... He's on in years, and he's maybe just kind of f more frustrated than angsty. But I don't feel frustration. In fact, an artist of his caliber, or any artist uh, of any sort of media that is, you know, able to produce such great pieces, whether or not anybody thinks they're great, someone who's able to produce artwork, think about where they did it a thousand times, they did it a million times, and yet at this point... They can't do it anymore. Wouldn't that evoke some emotion? It's not just the young artists. The well, older, too, would have that, that sort of moment of, I've done this a thousand times. Why am I dry now? Why am I done now? Well, that can happen, and that has been proven to happen. But, but first of all, in that interview, he, he said, you're looking for a road, for a pathway, a character, a muse, a romantic muse, philosophical muse, uh, a spiritual muse, a story, anything, but you're not guaranteed to find it. So it's essentially a song about obsession. I think really more your argument is you don't really feel obsessed. I don't feel much of anything. Uh, That's my big issue. Well, I think it's an interesting idea, but yeah. I do wish it was flushed out a little better. But would that ruining it in turn, making it devaluing the song? Because... I mean, it's, it's, it's our classic art versus yeah. music and... I think that we're all in agreement that it doesn't. The song doesn't really necessarily do anything for us, and but I can a, kind of see what he was going for. And it's a strange first track for the album. I, agree. I think I might have been more forgiving if this was somewhere in the middle. But we have some. We have different topics that we're going to cover. The next one is actually very different. In track two, fifty thousand. Uh, this was written the week Prince died, yes. and that's pretty important because this pretty much addresses. All those deaths in 2016, many of them celebrities, artists, people, uh, some of which Sting knew, some yeah. of which were close to him. There, there were a lot of talented musicians and actors and performers who passed in 2016, and Sting makes specific references and allusions in this song. Um, and this song also, like, unlike the first track that was this kind of perpetual song in motion that we kind of fell into, this does have a prop, proper finger quotes intro where we have a little lead up before we get vocals. We have a little bit of instrumentation to kind of chew on. Though the well, song, I would still say the last one had like a twelve seconds worth of introduction. This one maybe it lasted a little longer. Yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure. I would describe it as kind of like a U2ish sort of sound. But that's only for the intro, and then we see that again in successive choruses. But the verses have a very very different character than than what we saw in, in last in the last track for sure. And I really really liked them. The verses mm -hmm. here do feel like there has been a loss, and they feel kind of. Like not, I'm not. I want to say aimless, but they feel like they're searching for something, searching for some they, kind of meaning. They feel fractured. They feel there like, you, go. you know, it sounds like someone who's almost given up. Not quite numb, but almost there. You know, this point where after so much death and loss, you have nothing left to give. You're almost an empty vessel. And I get a sense of that from the kind of low vocal tone he's delivering these lyrics in. And I like the vocal tone. I just don't feel too heavily into his pacing and this is the real problem it comes off not as numb for me and i can get that from just the the general area he's singing in but plain and it's because that numbness is not translated into his speed his actual delivery and this is where i i got a big hiccup 
he's going very quickly with these words. His syllables are riding on top of one another, even though you can hear everything he's saying. And that, for the combination of how low he is versus how much he's saying, is actually pretty nice. I mean, you can get a lot of story in a very compact area. You're not missing much. But because he's putting in a lot of words and a lot of syllables in each line, it doesn't come off as numb or as depressed. It comes off like he's just trying to get a lot of information to you. And that comes off to me as plain. Um, uh, for, for me, the inconsistency almost, the at odds of how it's delivered versus how fast it's delivered, I think just adds to this kind of numb loss. You know, you're not going to think that hard about how or what you're saying when you're so absorbed in the loss of everything around you. You're kind of just delivering information however it can fall out of your face. Well, and you Sometimes also, how fast it can fall out of your face. You can also argue that artistically the, the idea that there were so many deaths, they kept rushing at you. Yeah. It can evoke a lot of feelings I mean, it, that you want to get across. I mean, you. I, I definitely felt that way, and there were moments, I mean, just towards the end of the year with Carrie Fisher and her mother passing within days, yeah. it really did feel like this rush or flow of talented people just leaving this earth. Quite a depressing and, way to, for us to start off the year here, but, you but, know, but I think it's, that, it's definitely worth addressing. And I think the way, what John has a conflict with is the, the exact thing that I think intrigues me about the song. But I want to I stress something else here, because that was, it wasn't my initial, like, once she pointed it out, yeah, I saw it. I saw it that it was pretty jumbled, that there was definitely a lot crammed in a small area. I didn't think it was poorly done, though, because it has to do with the, the context of this feel here. Mm -hmm. To talk about the verse a little more, I really, really liked how thin it was, especially considering it highlights certain things that I wouldn't like in other contexts, but mm -hmm. that I liked here. Say, for instance, the bass and how it was just those eighth notes over and over and over again. Well, usually I'm not a fan of that. I'm like, come on, give me a more a more substantive bass line than that. But here it was unique because there wasn't much else. The guitar was just total comping and color at this point. It wasn't a constant presence. And that the tone of the guitar actually brought me back to New Wave in a big way, so it was a nice nod to what I would hear in his early career. But here's the thing. Although it's, it's very, very thin, the guitars are the soul of this piece to me. Just every once in a while, they enter in with these little slides. Mm -hmm. These long slides and melodic bits that are actually far more melodic than his vocals, for instance. Even though his vocals are more present constantly because they're always talking, they stay put and they feel more like spoken word. I know there's a pitch there, there's definitely a melody, but it kind of does wash over you next to the guitars, which really shine and glisten and bring out the luster of this section. I imagine it's because he did want you to focus on lyrical content over that of his vocal melody. So for me, no, that wasn't the most interesting part, his vocal melody, but I think it all balanced in a pretty effective way. I tend to struggle at picking up lyrics, but here there was no problem despite the density. And that actually was to its benefit. It's just... When we get a section like this, which at the end of the day almost is a news report of information dissemination as opposed to really being evocative about these people you worked with passing away, and then you pair it with the chorus, which feels like there's a disparity between the verses and the choruses. Well, the, the chorus pick up yeah. a lot, and that... They swing back to that U2 feel that I described in the intro, which is, I don't know, that was a little... For the subject matter, it did seem to... Maybe it's another one of his ways of saying there's hope at the end of the tunnel or something. But just just avoid walking, dancing around the topic here. I mean, it's not just on the people who died. Yeah. Sting is an artist. Yeah. And he 
he gets to mull about these in more of a deeper sense than the rest of us do. Sure. If you're in the industry and this is happening to people you may have even known in the industry, then that means it could happen to you. Well, yeah. it will. It, we're all going to die. Yeah. But the artists die too, and they get to sort of wonder about their legacy mm-hmm. and whether that legacy is going to be as impactful as the guy who just died. It, it, it must be a really weird sensation for oh, those. I'm sure. Which is why I think the chorus, for all of the kind of, like I said, disparity I'm seeing between the verse and the chorus, the chorus itself speaks a very simple but profound message, especially when it starts to get a little bit thicker, a little bit meatier. 50,000 voices rising every time he sang, and every word he ever wrote reflecting back to him. Still believing that old lie, the one that your own face betrays. Rock stars don't ever die, they only fade away. Hmm. That is a really really profound idea, very simply put, very well done. It's just, I feel like we're going from, like I say, a news report to like an emotional outburst, and I don't know how the two are lining up. But that's just the thing. How do you reconcile with that? When you're an artist, you see it on the news, discussed so distantly, and then you realize that this is a subject matter that will affect you very closely one of these days. Yeah. I, I... I personally like the kind of emotions this song goes through. I would agree that upon separation, the chorus might seem out of place, but through what this song is trying to provide and the lyrical content, which I think is the highlight of the track, which we can probably all agree on, it it gives the song this kind of form that I am really fascinated by because... I can say up front, just to talk personally again, and this has come up before, I was very affected by David Bowie's passing. I, however, never worked with him and was not friends with him. I imagine someone like Sting, who may have done both those things, Hmm. it would affect even more. And so to be this kind of jumbled, inconsistent, seemingly numb mess within a song with fascinating lyrics makes sense to be this kind of almost jumbled, undecipherable, decipherable thing. And also, I noticed that his vocal delivery does change a little bit because even when he when he does tend to talk about the stuff about how it's affecting him and mm-hmm. making him ponder, he he does get quite a bit more candid, I noticed. Like, yeah. he just, he brings it down a little bit. One of the lines was, reflecting now on my past inside this prison I've made of myself. I'm feeling a little better today, although the bathroom mirror is telling me something else. These lines of stress, one bloodshot eye, the unhealthy pallor of troubled ghosts. Where did I put my spectacle case? I'm half blind and as deaf as any post. This, it gets very it's, personal. It's, it's grip, someone gripping with his own yeah. age and aging in general. And and there's quite a bit of musical connectivity here, I think. Oh, I don't, I don't see that. If he's going to get that deep, I don't feel like the music was reflecting that kind of glimpse into the mortality of an artist and him reflecting upon. I don't feel that in the music. The yeah. mel- I told you how I how the the guitarists seemed to be that like that distant echo of his plight. I think that was it's the balance of it all. And yes, I'm talking about more in the verses than in anything else. Not so much in the choruses. Although I really like the instrumental. Let- kind of an instrumental at 2 minutes and 34 seconds where you just have those single tones and the one guitar is just on the staccato quarter notes. I don't know, there's something that felt kind of contemplative about this but also still sting. Yeah, and I think also that moment, that realization moment or that moment that you're looking for, John, I think is almost kind of a glorification that doesn't really happen. Sometimes when people struggle with their own age and mortality, it's just a thing. It just kind of happens. There's no awe-inspiring or shattering or aggravating or anxious moments. Sometimes it's just 
a moment like any other moment. Well, it's probably Shia's. And I should also talk about how the track ends too. because yeah. what kind of note does he want to leave you on? Well, this is one of those tracks that fades out. Yeah, yeah, and, and this it, is it's it's that eternal song mm-hmm. which. It's ironic because it's anything but. Yeah. It's the exact antithesis of eternal. It's the discussion of the fleeting nature of life and the fleeting nature of the art and the work that you do because there's no guarantees that it will be remembered 100 to 1,000 years from now. Some stuff does, some stuff doesn't. But just the fact that that in itself is an eternal subject. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. I think as a, as a structure, this song operates at a much higher level than the previous song did. I mean, that's not an impossible task on this record, but I really like what this song does, and I did enjoy it for what it was. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not defending it on every single point. I think John makes a lot of good, uh, good points about it. It doesn't accomplish everything. Right. But so far, what I'm liking about this record is that it does offer food for discussion. And even though it's only track two... Each track has been pretty meaty on that end. And they've both been candid, too. We're getting yeah. staying at face value here, which I think is important to say. Uh, he's 65 years old. We didn't say his age outright. But, yeah, you're probably going to get a lot of these reflections on life and his his sort of broad view, having experienced a lot, been in the industry a long time. And I, I think it's been more effective, frankly, than a lot of the other aged rock star albums that we've looked at. I would agree. So on that, let's go to track three, Down, Down, Down. Uh, interesting beginning, but it it actually starts off with this clank, like almost sounded like a cowbell, mm-hmm. and it's like clank da 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 da, and it just keeps going from there. But it was just this this really really sharp intro, and then after that you have a very interesting rhythm because the guitar here has its own pulse, and every other measure it accents on like beat three and four, and then every other measure it accents on like the two and and the four, which I thought was really interesting. But then the drums against it, they're doing something a little bit different. They accent every other measure on the one, and then every other measure they usually have like a pickup on the four. But the first measure is the set that actually avoids the accent on the one, and so you get a little bit thrown by how you want to count that, count like where the where the pulse is. And then the next measure, when you do get the accent on the one, it's just a hi-hat. And because of the timbre of the hi-hat makes for sort of a less firm start, I thought that was somewhere in the middle, and so it for a moment, I wasn't sure this was in 4-4. And so you can kind of lose yourself in the strains eddies of the pulse. You pick up you pick up on it pretty quickly, and then you're like, oh, yeah, 4-4. But just I thought that was a really cool way to start off. That he hadn't been so evasive yet. Everything else musically on this album was pretty clear-cut. Yeah, and I really like his vocal delivery and the lyrics here. Um, that guitar pulse allows him to do interesting things with his vocals that he's not really done yet on the record. Actually, that was the first thing I noticed right away, and it was definitely, in my ears, an improvement right away, because we're getting nice pacing. Pacing that I kind of wanted in the last two tracks, because it feels like he's actually imparting something with the length that he's delivering some of these syllables. It it doesn't feel like it's so regimented. At the same time, his inflection is also more impactful because it's not lining up to the pacing itself. It's actually emotional. It's emotional like I don't really feel like he's done so far. It feels like he's being more expressive here, especially in this first verse. It was a bit of a wake-up call. I think it has something to do, again, with the music in the background. It's not so much that his vocals are very different to me, but that it's this blend of, this, like, creamy blend of the vocals and the guitars. It's it's almost... It's almost bipolar. They're peaceful, and yet they're troubled at the same time. That's the feel of this section, but the phrase always ends with 
down, 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 which interestingly is a little happier. It's this this three chords and it seems like it's all E major. And then on that, we shift to the chorus with its whole C sharp minor feel, which is a nice relative minor down. And the chorus here has warmer vocals and yet more distant. So this actually was a cool effect, and this was just, this was all him. This wasn't, didn't have so much to do with the context, but it was an effect that was added. And that effect made his vocals sound more distant, but yet warmer at the same time. And that's a really interesting juxtaposition. And actually it works so much differently than it did in the previous track, 50,000. 50,000 I think had the same sort of highs and lows when you're talking about the chorus and the verse. The chorus felt a little bit on the higher side, a, bit, a little bit of a too heavy buildup in 50,000. But here, because of the way down, down, down rings out a little bit happier, yet the chorus doesn't lose the background sort of uh, distant feel because of that juxtaposition, because of that background sort of vocal work, the flow between the two is so much nicer, so much more yeah. concrete. It feels Even like though- a more natural evolution from verse to chorus using that little palate cleanser there but what's interesting is that actually the lyrics are pretty much they're they're all down it, the whole song is called down 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 and i don't really think there's much of a difference from verse to chorus it's just the feeling even though it doesn't go down to c sharp minor it feels a little happier it feels a little warmer in the chorus but this, the lyrics are still, here comes the sound I've been expecting all these years. Here comes the sound of everything I've feared. Here comes the sound the floors below me disappear. Here comes the sound I force my fingers in my ears. It's just, it, despite being rather depressing, it's a little bit of an earworm. It actually, it does a lot to be a great chorus. And yes, you could take it face value as being happy chorus. I feel this more as a, as a manic kind of an idea, more as a apprehensive moment where there's a lot of energy, a lot of nervous energy going on. That's why it kind of sounds a little bit happy, maybe even a little bit giddy, but it's mostly just uh, building up that tension and sort of trying to get a release because it's he's energized, he's jived up, he's he's there, he's in the moment. I wouldn't quite call it that. Recall, recalling the, the melody in my head at that chorus... I wouldn't call it giddy in any way. It was sort of a downturn. Here comes the sound I've been expecting all these years. There's like a, it's kind of a bookstore feel like, but in the slightly more like it's gonna, I'm gonna notice it. If I am browsing all of the aisles, I've used this this analogy this, so many times, but still I would absolutely notice it. And also there's something about that. Here comes the, it sounds like it's gonna say, here comes the sun, you know, the well-known Beatles track. And I was wondering whether that was intentional because that's a very easy way of getting people to remember your chorus. Like I can hear it in my head now that here comes the, and it's almost the same meter. The, the way it starts is very similar. So I'm remembering it, and that's a success. I mean, I'm sure like the rest of us, he draws inspiration and love from the Beatles. I find it hard to believe being a Brit that he doesn't have any influence from them. But also, I didn't make that connection until you pointed it out, which is really interesting because it seems really obvious now. But I think the song as a whole just conveys... I don't know. It's interesting, the arc of this album so far, musically and lyrically. And so I think it's, for me, progressively trending upward, at least content-wise. I don't want to use a tired trope, but I think the lyrical content here is really what's standing out beyond anything else. It's not exemplary to me by any means at this point, but I think it's interesting and engaging in a certain way. I'm inclined to agree. It's 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 uh, it's not a there's no complex ideas here that are being presented, but each and every one is obvious to its credit. 
obvious to the point that it affects all of us in some way. And yet, the funny thing is that this is the one that is actually more personal, even more than the others, because this is the one that's about a relationship. He had, that's another portion of this album, is that he goes into distant relationships. So it's still reflecting. It's still consistent with the theme of him being a little bit later in his life, mm -hmm. and he's got a lot of relationships to look back on. And a lot of times it's about where they screwed up, where they failed, sometimes his own failures, sometimes just the inevitability of where they were headed. Yeah, this, this the, to uncover the theme of this record, there will be no John analogies and no rocket science involved. It's about his life and him moving on in life. I, like, do, I do absolutely. I do love this one line taken from his liner notes, it's not in the music, but he says, it is such a rare and obdurate soul who can forget such pain and I am not one of them. <laughs> That's just a funny way to phrase it. He's it's sting. very, he's, he's staying. He's staying. He can get away with that stuff. I mean, if you have the, the gall to call yourself Sting one day, I mean, you're going to get away with a lot yeah. at this point. Um, but I think unless we have anything else to add, I'll move on to the next track, which I think is, the, I will stick by my earlier statement that the lyrical content continues to get more interesting. I agree. And also, you know, there's something you neglected to mention about this track, and that is those progressive choruses and the way oh, in yes. which, like, some of the choruses... I am choruses, the guy who always mentions yeah, that. The, the, well, I want to point it out because that final chorus that we get here does transform it from, you know, before we had Here Comes the Sound I've Been Expecting All These Years Is Everything I Fear, blah, blah, blah. And then the final chorus is Here Comes the Sound I've Never Heard Before that tells me you're walking out the door. Here comes the sound of someone calling out for aid. Here comes the sound of someone falling. So I like the way he ends the song. And also it's different ways of constantly saying that singing that melody over and over in your head. Here comes the sound. And then you know, because there are so many different versions of that single line, you kind of could just go blah, 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 blah. It's like toward well, the yeah. end. But yet if you read, it goes from expectation to enduring to finally it crumbling and falling, as he says. Yeah, and I mean, actually the rapidity of it is reminiscent of when we did This Old House by Rick Astley, because he kept saying the same line over and over again, but he was changing the tail end of it and showing this kind of movement through talking about this partner, this house, this whatever it was meaning to him in that moment. And I get a sense of that from this track as right. well. Which he actually does in the next track, One Fine Day. I actually... We'll agree that the lyrics are getting more interesting, mm -hmm. but I will say this is probably one of the least favorite social tracks I've ever heard. The social commentary tracks? Yeah, yeah and I want to say it's the music because I really like his phrase work here. Optimists say the future's just a place we've never been. History say we are doomed to make the same mistakes again. Between the two, I can't decide. Really, I must choose a side. I guess I'll wake up smarter one fine day. Well, it sounds like he did decide right there. He, yes. he chose to be an optimist. And then it keeps going. Apologists say weather's just a cycle we can't change. Scientists say we've pushed those cycles way beyond. Dear leaders, please do something quick. Time is up. The planet's sick. But hey, we'll all be grateful one fine day. To do a track about climate change is interesting, especially at his point. I mean, he's always been an activist. We talked about that earlier. Except that, that yeah, that, for that reason, exactly. It did not shock me that there'd be right. something like that. But on I think the specific topic of climate change was interesting yeah. to me. I mean, but I agree with John. The, the vocal delivery and the actual lyrics themselves are very interesting. And I like the way he phrases things. It, it makes you think for a moment, but it's not like a thought-provoking track in the sense that you have to figure it out, per se. There's been enough climate change songs out there before. I mean, it's still it's still relevant. Like, it's yeah. still... Here's the thing. I would disagree that it is a constant uphill progression because musically, this track did take a little bit of a dive for okay. me. I think we were on a kind of a high in track three. And here, this was just sort of your four-chord progression. But I think this is... 
maybe the more appropriate bookstore track to me. Yeah. Because in many ways, I hear this, I can hear it if I was walking through the aisles, and I do think I would notice this one, but in more of a relaxed setting. Like, this is probably the more likely one to actually be on that playlist, because I, I, I just visualize that there are a bunch of playlists out there, be like, play at bookstore, <laughs> and they sell them and share them. And I think that has to do with the bass itself. The bass is very inviting, it's very soothing, and it's wandering. It's not really walking. Yeah. If it is walking, it's walking in circles. But it is the more engaging element, and having bass be your engaging element, except for the choruses, where some piano work shows up. Yeah, that was going to be the one, a the nice one other point. The one other thing I like alongside that bass is the piano, which doesn't appear until the pre-chorus for the first time. It's a little more prevalent in the chorus. And it's very bright, very natural and again kind of fits the setting of a very bright and easygoing environment such as the bookstore and I'm not gonna let this go that's that's the problem I have at the end of the day when the track further goes on when it actually starts to get a little more in depth with what's going on content wise after those first two verse chorus pair offs it it starts to lose a lot of the impact because nothing's really changing and he's sort of leveling out all around. It starts feeling like... It starts feeling apologetic. Like, I don't want to impart these beliefs on you. These are my beliefs. But... Well, if you, if you agree, cool, and if you don't, I'm sorry. I disagree. I, disagree with I don't think it feels apologetic at all. I feel like it's non-confrontational, which is not the same thing. I feel like this is him delivering a message in a digestible way that he wants very much to get out there. And Steve's bookstore analogy, I think, is very strong, because if this was played in Starbucks across America, people would be hearing his message. That's, Whereas yeah. if it was an aggressive, violent, and brutal song, it might not get played anywhere, or anywhere that you might not reach people that it absolutely needs to reach. And yeah, so, but, but, and that's where the crux of it happens. He doesn't commit to one side by the end of the track. He's just talking about, well, if we get smarter, we'll do something like this, maybe, kind of, but he never really but, takes a stand. That's not true. That's, absolutely. The, issue. that's the issue. He is extremely consistent yeah. from the get-go. He knows what needs to be done, and the, 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 the metaphors here are really quite interesting because... Or rather, the references. Today, the Northwest Passage just got found. I, I never heard a phrase that way, but yet it's such an obvious one. Obviously, you have all the receding ice, then that thing that we were searching for all throughout the 19th century, the faster way to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific, it wasn't found, but that's because at the time, there was so much more ice, yeah. right? And so it was completely unpassable. There were some people who tried to do it. Like, just recently, they found the ship, the HMS Terror, which was Sir John Franklin. It was one of those, like, you know, great stories of the ship that goes up there, and then it gets frozen in the ice, and the, the whole entire crew had to be evacuated, and they walked for miles and miles and miles, and one by one, they froze to death. And uh, they had actually, maybe like 20 or 30 years ago, they did find three people who were almost perfectly preserved, but they never found the ship until really recently. Um, anyway, I just find this absolutely fascinating. Still, this was and the one related. that was, it was meant to find the Northwest Passage, and the reason they, they were going to, they were never going to find it, because at the time, there really was no perfect way, or at least they didn't have, like, you know, icebreakers at the time, so they would never be able to get through to the other side, but now, just recently, it did open up. There was an article about this that 
Well, you could cross it now. A little late for it to actually be relevant in modern day society, but it makes a good point but, about climate change. Wow, uh, I love the reference as well. Yeah. I, I do agree with it. That is a, a cool little thing. Um, and actually, it was about 1840s, 1850s that they tried yep. for it. It was like one of those. 1840, There were so many different, but that was the most famous that was one, one of the big because ones. It, and it was pristine when they found it. Especially considering that that ship was supposed to be like the top of the line at the time. Yeah. It was supposed to be the one that had the best chance of making it through, and yet they still they still got caught up. But, I'll start again, with that line and the following lines, three penguins and a bear got drowned. The yeah, ice he... they lived on disappeared. Seems things are worse that some had feared. I know. I... He's, he's building up to something here. He is. Well, yeah, it's just because of that. He goes from the really unique reference to the one that has been used time and time again. Mm-hmm. There are polar bears on ice floes and they can't reach their home. And, and I don't know, It's just it, it does lose something on me. Fo- directly following the other thing. Which is also anecdotal. Penguins don't live in the Northern Hemisphere. They live in the Southern Hemisphere, so they wouldn't have drowned in the Northwest Passage. Okay. <laughs> but it, yeah, he switched, right. he switched hemispheres. But anyway, back on topic. The, the, the final lines. Today it's raining dogs and cats, rabbits jumping out of hats. And now what's got us all agog? Tomorrow it's a plague of frogs. We must do something quick or die when snakes can talk and pigs will fly, and we'll all be so much wiser one fine day. And I actually really like the delivery of that final line, one fine day, but the delivery of all that other imagery is really noncommittal. It's really blasé, and it is bothersome that he's still going departments to music with something that's supposed to be the culmination of of believe this way he feels like he's just phoning it in at this point yeah, but it's that's consistency of the song and which is a problem i have with the song that's the crux of it he's building up to something lyrically and doing it nowhere else on the track What's the point of telling this great message and actually like pointing out the flaws of what's going on well, I if you're just going to let it wash over people and be background? Because I don't think it's going to be background. I think it's highly digestible. And I think exactly. that's what the song's strength is. And while, yes, there's not this forceful impact, I feel like the lyrics delivered as they are in this structure, in this melody, will be ripe for mass consumption, which is the point, so it gets to more ears. And also, it's slightly more layered than you're giving it credit for, because I did realize when you were reading that last line that I've been saying it's it, he's being optimistic in the beginning, but it it really does seem like he's been leading himself through this like hoop of like, well, one fine day, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it, we'll fix it, we'll fix it. But then when he gets to the end, he does throw in that line, we'll must do something quick or die, uh, when snakes can talk and pigs will fly, which is always the phrase that people say that it's never going to get done. Yeah. So he does switch to pessimism at the very end, and we'll all be so much wiser one fine day. So it Almost is a, it like is a, sarcastic. It is, exactly, a, sar- a sarcastic, snide, sort of cheeky... But that isn't paralleled in the music. The music doesn't actually showcase any of that. His vocals don't showcase any of that. The message is there. It's clear in the lyrics. I don't know it's any way to sell there. to you apart from the digestibility, which we already mentioned. But, but it, digestibility... And it's, that's not a selling point for, for a major musical, uh, musical piece of art for me. So far, all of it has just achieved what he wants to achieve, and I think it would be effective at doing something en masse. It's one of the few it's one of the few areas where I would actually defend that style of songwriting. But I would actually argue against that purely because digestibility promotes forgettability. If you digest something, if you're able to easily take it apart, take it in and then pass it on, where is the actual change gonna come to a person? If you're going to do a social song, 
And this is my argument as to why the art here really isn't meshing up together, that the music and art are definitely at odds. You know why? Because on the nose as it is, when he gets to that line, three penguins and a bear got drowned, the ice they lived on disappeared, some things are worse than some had feared, then everyone's gonna know, the layman, the idiot, will know this is that kind of trek. And it, it, that's that's good, because at least they'll they'll know. <laughs> your, gripe is not, your gripe is not unreasonable. Your gripe is actually completely understandable, but he's not making the song you want. So just because it's not the song you want, no. doesn't mean the song is a failing. I'm actually building up to a whole other thing, and that is that it's forgettable. I At disagree. End, I think this track really disagree. is forgettable. I disagree. In, and I wanted to say that in, in spite of the message itself. For me... I can't remember it. At this moment, we listened less than an hour ago to this track. This is one of the few on the album I just can't remember anything about. I can, but it's based on the connection of me having the lyrics in front of me. The second yeah. I say I see a line, I do hear it. And yeah. I, I hear it as I heard it. It's not forgettable for me either. I think because it's so digestible and almost ubiquitous, it's kind of just floating around in my brain. And again, just like Steve said, reading the lyrics brings it right back. And I think that's the point. We just had a discussion on climate change. Yes. Was that would that not be the the but let's, success? Let's talk about finally just to bring it back in the music itself. Besides the bright piano in the chorus and the bass that kind of wanders in a circle, what goes on here that does anything? The piano. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like it. It's bright. We it's easy going. This is adult contempo at its basest, but that's 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 all he needed to just cram these lyrics in, and I think he got them in. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm very rarely on this side of the coin, so I see John's plight. I really, really do. But, uh, eh, so far this is a kind of a lyric-effective album. To what degree you feel it is artistically um, brilliant, well, that's going to vary from person to person. But it's, it's achieving its goals at its very meager goals. Let's go to track five, Pretty Young Soldier. Delivery through lyrics is not going to stop at this point because mm -hmm. track five is the same. This, this song, we get a true storytelling song and probably the folksiest song on the album for it's sure. It's not folksy-ish. It is folk. Right. It's well, straight up folk. I said folksy-ish. Folksy, not folksish. Well, folky. This is a folk song. Cut it, yes. Strike it. <laughs> and, it's folk pop. Uh, to pin it a little more forcefully. Yeah, yeah I, I would only say that because you have a later track that is even more kind of rooted in folk than this. Well, this one has a uh, the drum work feels more contemporary mm -hmm. than like an old school folk track. True. The guitar work feels to be a little it's bit folk more like electric. Mumford and Sons is folk. Yes. It's modern folk. But one of the things that it's missing that you get from things like Mumford and Son or something that Steve brought up Lucky Man is that it doesn't really have flair differentiating the chorus and the verse outside the vocal delivery. I brought that up because, of course, Lucky Man by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, which was, well, is, is hailed for a very different reason. Is of course, because it's one of the first tracks to make a heavy use of the Moog synthesizer in its giant solo outro. But that's not the bulk of the track. The bulk of the track is, is a folk track. That 60s folk brand that was present in a lot of bands. It's not necessarily unique to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, but there's a certain old-world delivery there. Uh, the English brand and there's that kind of here sort of 
it plays very much like Lucky Man, and in a sort of a smooth 1960s sense. Even the guitar really feels like it's of that era, and the guitars are just holding down that, you know, three-quarter time. The drums are actually more patting it down in 6-8 in because they're going a little bit quicker here, but you, you really do feel 3-4 after a while. And uh, it's, it's hard to take it out of the time frame that I'm hearing it in. Yeah, the song, and the song is delivering in a way that's very matter-of-fact, you know, this is a story and it feels like an old man on a hill delivering the story you know there's no this is the only track i can think of really on the entire record that really feels removed from sting's direct uh reflection on life this really just feels like a a play on other another kind of folk song and apparently the story he's telling here is common a, a common british trope which also kind of takes it out of this being a reflection album for Sting, unless he's reflecting on previous works that he's heard. It's actually almost a, a direct representation of a more of a of Sauvé Sauvé. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, Sauvé Sauvé is about a woman who dresses up like a man and becomes sort of a, a highway woman mm-hmm. and becomes sort of the embodiment of masculinity in a lot of ways, it became a running theme in a lot of 18th century and 19th century uh, British folklore mm. songs. Yeah. It's like the woman who defies her part of the race, her who defies her sex to become Think George masculine. Sand a little bit. Yeah. The one the who had that sort of, of quote-unquote not-quite-affair with Chopin. <laughs> right, and it's this idea that, you know, uh, well, I can do what you can do, and here I'm going to pretend to be you to do it better. Yeah. But I, I've got issues with this because the chorus that steps up really does the same thing that the choruses did in the old folk versions, the really old-school style, and that the only major difference is a slight uptake of inflection. Like, I, it, it's hard to pin it down that first time when he sings, she watches the pretty young soldiers, and it's another one of those evolving choruses. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't think he has any choruses on this album that really stay stagnant. I mean, Which that's I not, do. that's just not stink. Yeah, and I like that. I mean, he's always done that, but I think here it works in an interesting way, because me and John has gotten to a brief argument, because I argued that they weren't choruses. But upon re-listen, of course they are, but I think it's because they're progressive, and because the story, as as a solid narrative just feels so fluid that I didn't consider them choruses because I just considered them another part of the story, which I think is a strength of the song. They're not even really progressive. It's the same exact lyrics. Come you pretty young soldier, come and be my right hand. You're having this strange effect on my soul. And now I think I understand. Oh, actually, there's one little difference. Yeah, that I don't quite understand. And then, and now I think I understand. That too progressive, but it's I mean, still, it's the same thing and it's just odd because it comes late in the song. That's right. the only difference. But I think that, again, the reason I didn't even really notice the choruses because I was so focused in on the story here. That's also to be said, like we were talking a little earlier, instrument-wise here, there's not a lot that's going to catch your attention. One thing, one thing really caught my attention, apart from the whole 3-4 feel. Sure. The drums here are actually really impressive, and it's something we did not give a lot of credit even during our, our off-air listen, but I really noticed it on headphones. Mm-hmm. The song itself never really gains a lot of steam. But the drums are actually like a locomotive at full cruising speed. It's just like chugga 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 pow, chugga 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 pow, chugga pow. It, it really <laughs> is impressive. And I, I don't really, it's a hard thing to pitch because it, it feels like it can just be glossed over. And frankly, they, they get more intense by the end of the track, but by a certain point after you had so many verses where I'm just like, it's like the lucky man verse, it's like the lucky mm. man verse, then yeah, it's, it's hard to, to really pick it out. But, but I do. But I, I would <laughs> argue that 
someone who maybe hasn't heard Lucky Man, which I would admit is unfortunate because Lucky Man is a great song. Yeah. But had you not heard Lucky Man, eh, then you might just take this as a unique thing. And so I think your your impression is coming from a previous experience that if someone doesn't have, it's really not going to affect them. It's just because it was so referential and previous songs, at least I could take as a new thing, even though they weren't, even though some of them weren't as innovative. This right. probably is a more innovative track, but just because I I've heard this before, I've heard it done. Right. I didn't need it necessarily. Honestly, if you take the or the adaptation or the common version of what's considered the original of Sauvé, you've heard it a lot because here's the first verse from that old, old piece. Sauvé, Sauvé, all on a day she dressed herself in man's array with a sword and a pistol all by her side to meet her true love, to meet her true love away did ride. Now here, I want to point out a few things in the lyrics themselves. So she rode into town on the very next day and dressed herself in a man's array. With a sword and a musket, she took the king's shilling. And to fight in some foreign war, she said, yes, she'd be willing. It's very oh, on the nose. It's not even very on the nose. Like, but it's, I mean, it's close enough that lines are almost being lifted. Well, but, Phrasing like man's array but, 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 being but you're not- the exact same. I actually have heard this song a lot before. Sure, but when you're taking something that's, you know, folklore and that's been done, done again, and it's a trad song, you're not really lifting. You're, because you're doing what others have done and you're putting your own spin on it, yes, the words are almost identical from part to part, but I think this is Sting showing here reflection based on influence, direct influence instead of reflection of his own life, which is interesting, I think. Sword and musket, sword and pistol, man's a right. Like these are really heavy lifts. To be fair, and that it's is only something... the one. It's only the one stanza. Yeah. You know, the rest of it he does expand. But on that's the quite only one I know from Sauvé Sauvé. Like I, that's one track I know from that style of art. It's just as soon as you said it when we were reading the liner notes. As soon as Matt said it off air, I went, oh, oh yeah, okay, no, I recognize this intrinsically, and it's something that's like this is. To my ears, like, there's nothing new content-wise going on. I'm and that's be, my big problem. I'm going to be blunt. I was aware of the phenomenon, but I was not aware specifically of Sauvé Sauvé. And so, through this song, I discovered that. In other words, it was a little bit of a doorway for me. And believe me, this has happened with less sophisticated uh, means, less sophisticated <clears throat> vessels than Sting. You know, it can happen in any other... Sometimes it gets a little, a little annoying, let's say, when someone discovers... The Claire de Lune by Debussy via Twilight, but at least they found, found it. it. Yeah. At least they found it, and I discovered a lot about culture through The Simpsons back in the 90s, so you know what? If it's a way of discovering culture and things that people would never have otherwise come across, I'm kind of surprised. I realize I'm playing total devil's advocate this entire episode, but if it's a way to keep it in the discussion, to keep it in the loop, because we have so much culture behind us, then I think it's a success in the end. And I would be inclined to agree with Steve. Also, if your only argument is, I've heard it before, that argument gets thin without other examples. I'm not saying you're wrong per se. I'm saying that if someone came to this virginally with no prior reference to the song Steve was talking about earlier or the messaging you were talking about now, this would be a success. I yeah. mean, you know, that's my only defense. 
which is very heavy devil's advocate, but I think it's still worth saying. Yeah, absolutely. And also, we're at the point now, uh, I was going to say we will be at the point, we are already at the point now where, frankly, it, the amount of literature and little cultural references that you're going to get through your proper uh, K through 8 and then college and then some education is not going to be covered in its entirety. Culture is too dense at this point that... I, I don't judge people as much as I used to, you know, when you're like a young and you're pretentious snob and you've read all these things and you feel like you know everything in the world and then it's just like, you don't know that? How could you not know that? There's a lot of things that you just miss if you're yeah. not in the right circle, you know? And we're just at a point where you have to keep on circulating it and, and inserting it, infusing it from a myriad of different angles and, well, at least, thank God, Sting has, has that somewhere <laughs> in his, in his uh, considerations when he was writing about these. Let's move on to track six, which is less culturally impactful, which Petrol is Petrolhead. This is a car song. That's, that's, that's all it is. It's a car song. It's got a twang. Well, I mean, what else are we going to say? I mean, there's more to it than that, but I think at its, this is the most superficial track on the record, I'd say. Well, Specifically, it's a road song. Yeah. He calls them road songs. It's funny because there were actually a lot of, there's a cultural reference for you, there were a lot of road movies back in the 40s, which sure. were these combinations of uh, these pair-ups between Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and mm -hmm. they would go on the road, like the road to Zanzibar, and they'd have their adventures, blah, 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 blah. See? There, there. I just popped in a reference that has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Now we can move on to the song. His road music is all about him, I guess, going from place to place. Of course, he's a traveling musician, so he's had to go a lot of places. He's been a lot. And the, the two of those key places really are England and also the United States because it's probably where you're going to play a lot of music as an English-speaking person. He writes two songs back-to-back -back here. One, I'll just preview the next one. This one is Petrolhead, and then the next song is Heading South on the Great North Road. So the one we're listening to now, this concerns the Great American West, and then the next one will concern Britain itself. Which, I guess, going country rock is actually quite apropos. I mean... It's 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 weird to hear Sting singing country rock, but um, it's. Eh. I would ar I wouldn't argue it's that weird because if you recall his new wave influences, I mean new wave as a genre was kind of a super genre, and it's not that unbelievable to kind of dip into that. But this isn't new wave. This <laughs> no, this you're is right. definitely right. not influenced by country rock. This it, is country rock. Yeah, there's, even there's down no, to the guitar there's no and new vocal wave pattern. Here. That's fair. I, That's I fair. would even just say southern rock, not not necessarily country rock. There are some country-ish things, but really southern rock, when you look at the, the intensity of the vocal, the, I actually felt like it was sort of like an ACDC style, which a lot of people think of as this being like this all-American thing. But would, it, it's got that tone. He's almost screeching. Especially in the chorus, and that's where I would say it actually defines itself as country because of the actual syllable emphasis. He very, very dramatically high attacks a lot of the chorus's syllables and lets it trail off fairly quickly to go from piece to piece to piece to piece. And that, that to me, feels just straight out of country rock. Garth Brooks. Sure. It's also the tone on the guitar. Just that slight distortion that makes it muffled but still warm and still crisp enough that nothing gets buried. You can hear everything individually on the guitar, but only yeah. just. Um, so that's also a very southern rock thing. And overall, it's a fun track. It, yeah. it is It is strangely not, like, specifically Sting to me. I can tell he's dipping in his toes into other areas, but I feel it is definitely would be appropriate for, let's say, a cross-country trip, at least once in the playlist. I, I, I could definitely see this on, like, a road playlist that I would make. I mean, that said, I'm going to take a kind of a step into John's shoes a little bit and say it is kind of predictable beyond that. Then again, your comparisons to ACDC are not unwarranted, though I love ACDC. 
their tracks, their high energy tracks are pretty predictable. And this I'm, one, I'm not a huge ACDC fan, so that wasn't. A, I didn't say that as a complimentary reference or comparison necessarily. Well, I would, and uh, but then again, okay. this whole album was been about face value and straight up delivery, and this song is really no different to that. But as much as we've gotten better lyrics, I mean, this is the one I would say I don't really care about what he's saying. Honestly, well, yeah. it's the inflection that's working. It's the guitar work that's working. Well, think about your favorite road songs. Like, you don't care as much about the content than the context. Like, Open Road Song by Eve Six, which is one of my favorites, is more about the energy and inflection than what he's actually saying. No, in this particular case, I'm stepping into John's shoes. But you know why? <laughs> because this particular feel, I don't know, it doesn't energize me in the same way. Sure, it's fun, but I'm saying that really in an objective, like, just very removed as po- as I can possibly be. But- in fact, in fact, I am a little bit... I mean, I realize he had to do it. Next, The next track is clearly so much more appropriate for something more, you know, English countryside related. But I feel like it could have just as easily been the... It could have fit the Great American West, especially considering that there was so much, like, 19th century American folk music that borrowed very heavily from old English folk. And I think, especially as far as our pop culture is concerned, American pop culture, there's a tenderer side to the great American West, to those prairie days. I feel like I I almost wanted the tenderer song for the American song here. Well, we didn't get that. Well, let's not mince words, though. I will absolutely say this is a low point on the record for me. I just thought it was very digestible and predictable without any message. Whereas at least track four was digestible and predictable, but with a good message that I was behind and interested in. Well, then I'll say just one more thing about the last track that could could be glossed over but shouldn't. The intricacies of the guitar, the guitar itself, is a very, very flashy element in in the petrol head, honestly. It's it's very fun. In fact, it really picks itself up in the final verse and, and chorus. Yeah, the verse three was probably the best, and the trade-off in, in accents between the vocals and guitar. I, I, I'll, I'll come around to it. Actually, I do believe it was a genuinely intense track. It's just I don't think it's something that would last for any longer than a track for me, and well, it yeah. is a little bit outside of the feel of this album. And maybe that's more our gripe. Musically, but I don't think emotionally. Uh, no, I do think emotionally, and that has to do with what John said. The lyrics don't, they don't add the weight that have given us so much talking okay. power in the previous tracks. In fact, I would so say from, from the theme of being contemplative, it actually does work, but that is the only place I'm really well, sure I would, it in. But that's where I was going, is but, that it still fits to the self-reflection, but... But it didn't give us fuel for discussion. It didn't give us petrol. <laughs> yes, but I think for the theme of the record, it still fits. But I am not disagreeing that musically, it's like WTF. It was I'll take you someplace that you've never been before, a place that you may have only dreamt about, and what's more, like Moses driving to his promised land. Let's turn at the burning bush, a stick shift, two to- stone tablets, God's commandment in my hands, 300 horse in my V8, close to 100 miles per hour, and all the meters up in the red. Now you don't worry your pretty little petrol head. Eh, road. That, 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 that's really it. Blah, 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 road, blah. Blah, 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 driving, blah, blah, blah. The road, cacti, and whatnot, like, He did a lot of emphasis. It did play off the vocals. Like, it was probably the coolest effects of vocal and instrument interaction on the album. Can't even agree with that. Earlier, uh, no. earlier there was other stuff going on. But let's go to the crown jewel of this album, in my opinion. Track 7, heading south on the Great North Road. And my previous statement is going to get retracted right here because... For the interaction of the music and the vocals, we're only going to get two pieces. Straight up Sting and straight up guitar. Well, yeah, straight up Sting, in a sense. So this song is framed as an old English ditty 
mixed with the finger-picking guitar that John was just mentioning, as this storyteller, wandering, musician, almost minstrel vibe that I get from a lot of, you know, old-school Irish songs and old-school English songs, essentially trad songs like I'd mentioned earlier. It feels like a thousand years of of English history just mm-hmm. wrapped up into this one thing. I mean, okay, it's a little bit of that old world appeal. It is the folk track on this album, far more so than Pretty Young Soldier, really. Yeah. Even down to the final line that is just a little bit more resolved. The first stanza, Many have gone before us now. Many have tried and failed somehow. Many a soul on the Queen's Highway, where many a tail light glowed, with the promise of a better life, heading south on the Great North Road, south on the Great North Road. And the final one is always resolved, but the repetition always there at the end, and he does this several times, heading south on the Great North Road, south on the Great North Road. And each and every time, it feels like it gets more intense, that final repetition, because mm-hmm. the dynamics in this track, I haven't even mentioned dynamics on, the, on this album, because frankly, <laughs> that is a thing that really has been missing in almost every single track. Just count by count, not a lot of not a lot of fluctuation. I could say trade-off, sure, but dynamics in, in the vocals or in any instrument, nothing really strays from where it starts. And in this track, I absolutely love the dynamics in the refrain. Uh, We'll call that the refrain, heading south on the Great North Road, south on the Great North Road. And he crescendos on that final, on the second one, south on the Great North Road, and the guitar follows suit. They both swell at that moment. And it's just his vibrato, everything jives together so well here. His flow throughout the rest of that track, though, is nothing nothing to gloss over. Uh, One of my favorite lines later on, Many a caged bird spread his wings. Just that that rise. He does a great uprise in in the midst of many of these lines that are just, it feels like he's fulfilling the lines in a way that really hasn't been done on the rest of the album. And what the guitar is doing is completely complementary of this. It's so tightly knit, yet it does not just parallel his vocals. It's playing around them and adding a little bit extra layer of context. So even though he may do the same sort of rise mid phrase, it feels a little bit different each time because the picking keeps changing up just enough to, to keep me engaged with, with the music itself, even though I'm so entranced by his vocal work. And the whole package gives this sense of hollowness, but what I mean by hollowness is the sound is filling the space. So it's almost like that single musician in an auditorium kind of feel. Yeah. yeah. Guy and guitar for the duration. And that's sort of the big spotlight moment. But it feels less cliche because it feel, feels like it's filling the space it's in. And I think that's where I'm really attracted to it. The primary focus of that is actually on his rhyming scheme with the ode. Whether it's the Great North Road, Great North Road, that that long ringing O is used very effectively and having it clipped with the D at the end works very well to actually put a very solid period on the end of each of these lines. And you, you actually get a lot of that, come to think of it, in the other lyrics because he always precedes that refrain, which is obviously ends with Great North Road by some other rhyme uh, ode, when one of them actually is, with many a debt still owed. Later on, many a vain bird crowed, many an unsecured load. Whenever a climbing truck was slowed, there was many a traveler's curse bestowed. In fact, that, the entire stanza is all ending in ode, and his inflection really does sell it that I don't get tired of that particular rhyme. But he also brings it back to the overall theme of the album itself in the final verse, and I really like the way it sort of cements it all down together. And this final verse is probably some of my favorite lyrics on the entire album, which is, 
All the memories will unload, the wild oats we claim we'd sowed, the stages where we proudly strode, as if our cups had overflowed with the promise of a different life. And so it's repetitive up until that one moment that shifts. But that stands the, out like a sore thumb in yeah, a good way because yeah. that's that's the goal here. And this is why I say that this song really would have applied very equally to, you know, let's say the America Driving West thing mm-hmm. also because there is, there is hope in... There's hope in this track, and I, I wanted to, there to be hope, at least in both. I Obviously, he had to say different things about each land, you know? But this is the, the, the message that has been used so many times throughout American history, you know? That there's always hope somewhere, you know? Which, for different people, has meant different things at different times. Sometimes it was, go west. Go west, young man, go west. It's all out there. You'll find it in California. And to some extent, that may be the same thing today for people that believe they're going to make it in L.A. But it's also has been go to New York City. There's always the hope and you'll make it in the great land. And here, it's a different perspective for me that I don't often see because this is London. It's south on the Great North Road. In case we didn't mention that, the Great North Road is a traditional, you know, has been there for ages. It spans the length, the north-south length of the British Isles. It goes from London all the way north to Scotland. So pick a place, any place, somewhere along some rural English or Scottish town, where are the opportunities? The opportunities are in London. And that is probably as true to different degrees, certainly, you know, back in medieval times as it is today. London still is, by many counts, one of the great world metropolises. It's where there's lots of opportunity. You'll Mm -hmm. still often find it ahead of New York City in many lists, you know, in terms of the opportunities it offers. So... Think of his position being a musician. Yeah, that's where the gigs are. That's where you'll make the real money You know, you can only make it in in Liverpool for so long to use the obvious example And I think what's even more important about all of that is that he lets you step into his shoes the way this song is delivered and performed It's very easy to relate and I think it's some of the things that John was saying he was missing earlier in the album which while I didn't agree then because I still got something out of it, I would agree that there's more here to chew on than those songs. But I do agree that it all culminates with that final stanza that you read and with that line that stands out like a sore thumb with the promise of a different life. Yeah. The promise of a different life. There's something on the other side. And I, it's, it's an interesting way to sort of Especially at his age, you know, the the past participle tense that he uses, the wild oats that will claim weed stood, right? As in, in the future, we'll say that we have had done that. Yeah. And and the stories that we'll tell. It's all this at the end of life. This, these, this was the journey. And, and so this is the great journey track. And it really does continue to fit this self-reflection that we've been talking about the whole album. From here, we go to track eight, which is If You Can't Love Me. And this is the song paired with Down, Down, Down as this great breakup or lost track, which yeah. I, I will say this about Sting. We've gotten a lot of breakup tracks in our past, and while these may not be breaking records or boundaries musically, they also don't feel as cliche as breakup tracks because there's a sense of realism to them that I feel like a lot of other breakup tracks just didn't convey. Well, also, this particular track, I think, beats out Down, Down, Down. I would agree. Um, Not maybe for every single reason, because I had more individual particular things that I liked about Down, 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 but this has a more tangible, broad view arc to it that you'd expect Mm -hmm. from a relationship that has finally gone south. I don't know if I love this track or hate this track. I'm in the same boat as John here. The reasoning is, the word I used earlier, plain, 
I think still applies here, but I think that might be both a positive and the negative. The lyrics themselves feel very stream of consciousness, like you don't have a time to actually prepare the speech. The speech actually comes later, verse 3, when things start really getting like interesting but there's at a least build, musically but there's a build to intensity in that in this song musically that i think allows the lyrics to kind of be the way they are and still have a unique structure to the song as a whole it's 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 the way it all comes to a head yeah. i don't think it has as much to do with the lyrics although it certainly has to do with the final uh lyric in that entire progression like you, the music in in the background it's this unmistakable intensity that keeps going down a whirlpool like the bass is descending the piano is descending the the drums are just sort of like pattering lightly and accenting lightly on the on the crash but it builds and builds and builds it's a strange misty setup and down we go down we go gradually growing intensity until finally that last line is if you can't love me this way then you must leave me and i just love yeah. the musical the sense of conclusion at that point the resolution or rather the ultimatum I just can't get my head around everything that precedes that the first two times we get that line. Because the first verse and the second verse are, is lines like this. Please sit down, just talk to me. We'll see if we can talk this through. I've tried so hard to understand it. Just tell me something that's close to the truth. And that is so plain, so matter of fact, so just like off the cuff. I have but to say. But it doesn't feel impactful when you compare it with something later on like, the patterns in the distant stars are fates upon the loom. The changes in the temperature when you walked into the room. The smell of your perfume, the taste of your skin. All those bitter reminders of the failed state I'm in. Like that? That's like, that's gripping poetry. The context is not set up for that poetry but, without that refrain. Relationships are a blend of both the grand and the mundane. Yeah. Sometimes you have to go with the day-to-day -day stuff. And well, it starts off with the day-to-day -day stuff. Hey, please sit down. We have to have that talk. We have to have that talk. And you, your, your delivery is not selling the heart that he's throwing into this. Because he continues right after you left off. I'd rather you were cruel than kind is all that I'm demanding. I've given up on peace of mind for the open wound of under. Understanding. That is a great resolution to how that began. It began as a conversation that could have been any old conversation, any any old argument that doesn't go anywhere. And he implies that the argument often goes absolutely nowhere, that they've been through the song and dance and it'll all just kind of neatly wrap up, but he would rather she be cruel than kind and rip it off like a band-aid because it's going on too long. And speaking to that kind of cyclical nature, the music does definitely give a sense of that. It builds to a head multiple times, but musically, more or less, it delivers in a similar way. Maybe not identically, but in a similar way. And I think that's also what's really interesting about this and Down, Down, Down. And while I hate to use the word real or honest, because we use that benign BS all the time, <laughs> and it really doesn't mean anything, I think what I really like in a sense of reality for this is it does, both of his love slash heartbreak songs reflect real relationships that sometimes there is drama and poetry and sometimes it's just what it is it's a matter of fact here is information here's what happened and i, I, I like think that we get both sides of that that's the balance that's the the goal of the great rock poet really uh -huh. is to be both at once you know yeah. to have the impactful lyrics in many ways that's another cultural sort of reference thing that that throws people into appreciating higher poetry often mm -hmm. that's kind of the gateway for many people today into uh into poetry is lyrics are you, you know, saying there's... sting's a gateway drug <laughs> sure why not <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm sure that's been said in some capacity in other, sure. other contexts i don't know but the thing is 
yeah, I want to talk about, you mentioned there were two big grand descents here. Yeah. But I want to talk about the thing that happens in between. Because it's true, all right, these lyrics, I would, like, remove myself and acknowledge that there was an interesting thing being done here. But if it wasn't for its, it's their pairing with the musical arc of this track, then it really wouldn't do as much for me. It turns this track into probably, again, a tie from one of my, either my top two or top three on this album. But in the interim, he does interrupt these two sections. Well, actually, three sections, because he does two of these big downward spirals before this little bridge section and then there's another big dramatic one following it. But in between there, it's sort of like a bridge at 2 minutes and 40 seconds. It's like a lounge jazz verse. It's very strange. It's it's dominated by the piano. The piano is the, the big element here and it's jazz piano. You can hear that in the chords, the voicings, which are incredible voicings by the way, and yet I wouldn't say that the, the piano is like the super dominant element. It's, it's the most obvious, but it's not a solo or anything. Thing, it's still just it's a figure it's a, it's a comping figure and it's the moment in which he himself turns a lot more inward in fact it's the lyrics that John read earlier on and but- it's actually a nice uh, not really coincidence but a nice ar- artistic direction to expand the track pretty dramatically musically while he's expanding his use of words his actual flowery language shows up here this this is the most expressive part of the track itself both musically and lyrically. And I, I, I see the artistic connection to how the track evolves up to this point. And for that, that's why I'm on the fences, whether I love or hate this track. Expressive is relative because I still find those swells and the big downward spirals that culminate. I find them to be very expressive. But they are, quote, plainer earlier. Yeah. This is more of an expansion you of these ideas. downplaying the amount of detail that goes along in that. It's just, it, they are prolonged and so it's easy to say, oh well it's not progressing, but it is, and it does. And it's important to mention, and I think reiterate, that I think the reason I like Sting's take on breakups and they feel less regular than other breakup songs is because he's acknowledging that sometimes there's a lot of drama in breakups and sometimes they're very plain and face value, and I think making it that approachable or finger quotes real as it were adds dynamics to the lyrics that I think we're missing on a lot of other tracks as well. It's 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 really both here. I could not take the music without the lyrics in this particular case. Absolutely. The lyric that's my ideal form of songwriting is when the music adds more weight to these lyrics that would otherwise be a not not vapid in any way, but they would be the words of someone who is uh, he wants the relationship to he's he's ready for it to end and interestingly he wants her to pull the plug. Yeah, That's because what's he doesn't actually have the gusto, as it were, to do it himself. Yeah. He's admitting a moment of weakness. He's, he's admitting, like, you need to do this. He's admitting weakness. He's admitting humility. He even yeah. says later on, I don't want half of anything, which who's to say whether this was, you know, during a, a divorce or we don't know which, which relationship specifically that may just be well, a reference. It's a divorce. Or it may be specifically the divorce. I don't want half of anything. He just wants it done, gone, over with. So it's uh, I this was a pretty effective track for me from yeah, pretty much all angles. I think for me, I don't know that I necessarily enjoyed it, but I definitely liked it. If that makes sense, you know, like I like everything about this song. I just don't know if it would be something I'd go back and listen to necessarily. And I think that also comes from how candid it is. Yeah, keep up appearances, they say, but all those reasons you might stay ring hollow in my mind today. I've listened till my head would spin. I don't want half of everything. And also there's the questions of of fadedness here going on too. The sand, it falls in the hourglass and time slips through our fingers fast and nothing that you say relieves me. If you can't love me this way, then you must leave me. And uh, speaking of fate, well, the next track, track nine, 
inshallah. Um, literally means in Arabic, if it's God's will. Uh, God willing. God willing, essentially. That's what this track is all about. I believe it does have a... a underlying meaning, the fact that he probably chose Arabic is because I believe in an interview he mentioned this is supposed to be about the Syrian migration. It's not too obvious in the song, except for those Arabic references. Obviously, the title of the track and the the big chorus lyric, uh, Inshallah, but then also perhaps because of the uh, some a little bit of Arabic instrumental in, infusion, which is the expansion on the percussion. Because earlier in the track, it just was kind of a normal percussion, like a, a running pace in the background, but I didn't notice anything kind of specific about it. It was sort of soft, just this short picking alongside it. But then later, I heard what I believe was a dunbeck. Actually, that was a nice effect as it phased in with its percussion line. It sounded almost like a helicopter at first, the percussion line. Like, it was that background, that kind of distance, kind of a thwump. And as it starts to build in intensity, it it changes the context of what it's doing. It transforms its intensity to go from being like like a sort of a background noise to being the actual momentum of the track itself. Yeah, the funny thing is I described the earlier part the, around like 33 seconds in when the when the rhythm starts to build here I, I thought it sounded like a John Carpenter running pace sort of. So I really wasn't even thinking you know, Arabic musical influence at that point and then before I realized it then I was like no, there's a tone there. There's something else that had kind of just popped up closer to the chorus and then I realized that same rhythm is accompanied by a, a another sound something that I well I only know because a doombeck is the goblet drum is another just sort of general sweeping term for it. Um, it's been around for like three thousand years. It's obviously not bongos. It's not tablas. It's I think it's a doombeck. Actually, going back to something you just said, there's more references to. Uh not just Arabic, but Persian culture in the lyrical work. Specifically, it shall come to pass, I think might be a direct relationship to the words, this too shall pass, which Mm. is supposedly originated from like a really old Persian Sufi poet who was talking about a fable of a great king and how those words specifically humbled him, which also plays off the phrase, inshallah, because... If you're going to look at that word and what it means in the uh, society itself, God's will is actually a fairly adequate way to uh, translate it because when spoken in earnest in an English-speaking country or, I guess, uh, by a a Christian in general or it doesn't actually – it's not denominational. It's non-religious in many ways. God's will would be the implication of by by fate, by God, by his divine hand It's resignation. It's resignation. You resign yourself to, if not a higher power, the idea that it's out of your control, that that something will happen and we have no control over it. And it's it's not sad though. That's the thing. It's It's a combination of sadness and hope. And that combination is very important. Impactful, very powerful uh, thing to evoke. But talking about it being the Syrian refugees, I like that it's not a direct reference. I like that it's really just about a dire situation that still has hope. Well, I found, I mean, I found that he mentioned it pretty heavily surrounding this song. And we, we have only one where it's very obvious, and that's the uh, against the sad boats as we flee, anxious eyes search in darkness with the rising of the sea. But who are we to say what his intent is? If Sting says it's about that, then it's about that. And it could just simply be that it's 
inspired him to write this song. It may not directly be about that, about the Syrian migration, but the Syrian migration might have inspired him to write a song as beautiful as this and about this subject matter and this topic and with these lyrics. And so I think that's more why he brings that up. Because well, it sure, may not be that, obvious to this. It's it's But it's obvious enough. But yeah. I confess that I would have needed, I, I did need the interview. It wouldn't have been as, as obvious based on the song alone. Mm -hmm. But then you read, in our country only, sea of worries, sea of fears, in our country only tears. In our future there's no past. If it be your will, it shall come to pass. I actually don't see it as that specific to uh, what's happening in the Middle East right now. Honestly, if you take out the loaded word, the religiously loaded word, you get a, a something equivalent to, I could see it fitting like the Cuban refugees back in, way back when. It's not really a thing anymore, but for the longest time, them traveling by makeshift rafts to the United States, to Florida, braving the seas, it fits there as well. Migrants, really migrants. Migrants gonna migrate. Yeah, That's it's just it's just someone searching for greatness, for betterness. Right, I think at its core, Sting is saying he was inspired by that specific event to write this song, but it absolutely could be applied to multiple other things that are within around the same effect. And I think that's also what gives this song a versatility that I really enjoy. I mean, besides its its beautiful construction, the way the guitar effect kind of, I don't know, it's this kind of almost electronic warp. Me and Steve weren't even sure at the beginning of this song if it was a guitar until we started to hear the finger slides. Yeah, but that's it, something that's present pretty much right in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But there, you hear, you know why? Because there's very little attack. There's no attack yeah. on that. You don't hear the initial picking. It sounds like it may have been picked in silence. Is you know, there, when you pick a guitar without any amplification, you really don't hear anything. But mm -hmm. then there's maybe some kind of effect pedal there that suddenly then brings out the sound, and then it sort of oscillates upward. You feel it, and then you feel the decay and then amidst the decay you can feel the sliding of the steel yeah so it that was a pretty cool effect and that's that's actually a lot more present than the the doombeck you know and because that's that's throughout the song mm -hmm. that guitar feel and it was a really nice effect and also one more thing about this is that's not the only uh bit of arabic musical influence the way he sings inshallah it's actually like he's stretching out the form of singing that you'd expect to hear from the top of a mosque yeah and but he's stretching it out and kind of con conforming it to the pop song structure yeah. but you can feel that particular musical influence in his delivery. Sure. Well, and I think he's trying to not appropriate it. He's trying to just deliver it. In, in, just a reference in, to right. the area of the globe that needs the most attention in this specific case. Yeah. That's all. Uh, one final note on this track is mostly and simply, I wish it was the last track. We get a track after this. I just think it would have been an interesting way to end a record on self-reflection because he's putting it even outside himself at this point and reflecting on those other people that aren't him. But we don't get that. We get track 10, The Empty Chair, which we've talked about this cliche time and time again, and it's just really frustrating for me here because we get a, a dreamy lullaby song that I don't know that I want it on this record. It's not that different in concept from track seven, Heading South. Because it is guitarist and guitar, and that's it, and yeah. that's all we're going to get. But the phrasing is definitely different. This story that we're getting right here 
of a man trapped in an enclosed place looking for something greater actually would have worked really well between tracks eight and nine. It would have been a great bridge from those two ideas because you would have gotten I'm a broken man if you can't love me to the empty chair to my entrapment to inshallah I'm going to there's just hope. Yeah. There's hope transforming away from this place of despair. But here it's kind of hollowed because yeah it still has a lot of the qualities that we got in Heading South that were positive in that the guitar work is pretty good, but it so dramatically parallels his voice and is so heavily playing up the lullaby aspect of it, it's hard to see it as anything more than just a really just an accompanying instrument as opposed to its own expressive force. Well, well you will get my agreement that in this particular case, I don't know if I would have tacked on any greater meaning to a track like this, at least because I didn't pick up the lyrics. And even reading the lyrics, it's not heavily obvious. But this is the last track where it, it is about something very specific. And when it's about something extremely specific, it's definitely worth mentioning. Uh, this is... <laughs> Speaking of Syria, this is about uh, the journalist, the American photojournalist who was murdered back in 2014. And uh, there was a documentary about it. Yeah, and called I believe his, this is his contribution to that documentary. Him alongside Josh Ralph, uh, they saw the film together and they, they composed this. It says that there was a hymn-like elegy for the end of the film of the movie and I believe that was on the part of Josh Ralph and then uh, Sting came up with a song to fit the tune so it was some sort of co collaboration of both of them and they came up with this they came yeah. up with the empty chair but it's it's, a, it's very specifically about that guy Jim who lost his life in 2014 and you know I would say that while structurally it does seem a little on the nose considering what it's about and what it's for I think most of my impact from this song comes from knowing what it's about and what it's for. I feel like on its own, it doesn't have the same strength than when you put it in the context, which is part of it. So separating it, I guess, is also a non sequitur, but I feel like there's not a palpable power to this without having the whole story. I, I actually do see it in the lyrics. I just think it's just very underrepresented in the actual music. It, it does have a story to tell, and it is generic enough, I guess I want to say, to have multiple meanings about a man undergoing a plight, mm -hmm. which can be impactful on its own. This is another one of those parts of the album, which I don't think I brought up earlier, but I want to bring up now. The additional lines of information I got on a lot of these tracks has done nothing to actually add to my experiences. In fact, in this case, I look at it with a different light, knowing that it was meant for something that not necessarily was meant for this album. And it, it does remove it a little bit from the overall story or theme I'm getting in the album itself. Yes, but as we talked about with Prager, having an acknowledged separation... Like, if this is just added because he wrote it and it's beautiful and he wanted to include it, technically it's not part of the album arc. Technically, it's just another song he made recently that he wanted to include, much like Prager's final track. But I think Werewolf actually had meaning in the rest of the album to showcase the individual talents of the people that make up the two very different yet extremely similar brands of Prager. Here, 
I don't see that. I don't it serves see this, but it seems serves the same purpose, in the sense that this is just here because it's a moving song about an important documentary about someone who is an impactful person in photojournalism. I I confess this this is uh, bringing about a little bit of a, a dilemma for me because traditionally I can usually separate myself from the topic it's the work that needs to reach out to me in a very specific way we kind of we kind of bandy this around i feel a little weird saying this but you know when we did the leonard cohen episode well when we did the leonard cohen episode we didn't know he was going to pass away in three weeks yeah and then he did and then well it factored rather heavily into your guys year in review and although i felt poorly for leonard cohen i'm sorry to lose him i don't know if it really if like elevated the work in retrospect, even though there were some notions about him mulling about the idea of death in that album. I, it's just really tough for me. The, the music itself needs to affect me first. Otherwise, I don't think I'm giving it a very good test. And it is true that when I compare the two acoustic tracks on this album, right, then in many ways there's a lot more specificity in this track, a lot more direct meaning, and t talks about something that was very sad, and I remember that guy's execution back in 2014, and uh, I felt miserable the whole entire day because he was executed so gruesomely. And yet, if I am just looking at the two works on this album that are acoustic, kind of similar in approach and in style, I feel a lot more about the uh, going south on the Great North Road, which is shallower than this. Only right. just ob objectively, all right, it's about hoping around the bend. All right, that's it's great. It's great stuff, but it's not as, you wouldn't think it would be as evoking. It's a lot broader. But does, does that necessarily make it not as sad? Because I, the music is always what affects me first, and I just think that was a slightly better written song. This particular track, the, the style of it was similar, but it just wasn't quite as unique as the other one. It's beautiful, but it's got a lot of the same songwriting staples, the same pivots and all, and so I really don't know quite how to approach it. It's just, I guess that is true. With John, what John brought up, this album being so topical, it clearly didn't affect him in the same way. At various times, I can recall that sort of thing has affected you very strongly, Matt, but I, I really don't know where I am. And I guess this is going to lead into my wrap-up. I think this album was great fuel for discussion. I think I said that earlier, and it, it, it really remained true for each and every single track. I didn't expect to say so much in this album, but the research was all there. Usually I think it's good that I do my research beforehand and that we're not just kind of poking around saying, oh, well, I think the song's about, oh, but the more I think about it, maybe that's the better test. Maybe it's a better test that we don't go all in super prepared, having, you know, looked at interviews and even just looking at Genius.com to say what they have to say. In this case, uh, Genius.com happened to have the liner notes or huge chunks of it. So I figured, well, why not? Bring it up. But does that really affect whether I'm going to go back to this album? I don't know. In, more, in many ways, that really says that this album is a flavor of 2016 in a very specific and unmovable way. That 2016 is almost... That here in our first episode of 2017, we looked at an album that is going to be so 2016, we're not going to be able to view it in, in other contexts. It's, it's 2016, and it's when Sting was 65 years old. Um, when he's 80... He'll probably still be thinking about this stuff. Will we still be thinking about this stuff? I still think it's an important place in his discography. Uh, and it looks at the things that are topical of the day. 
It is a little jumpy, though. Like, it cops over to climate change, which, well, you know, I guess this is going to keep on being a topic until the shit hits the fan. I have no idea. But I do think it's one of the rare cases in which I could at least see a unique, and I say that loosely, a somewhat unique take if we do believe that that was the goal, that it was to be digestible, and that in being kind of boring, it may end up being more effective? I don't know. I, I guess I can't realistically visualize somebody listening to that in a department store and saying, I'm going to do something about this tomorrow. I guess that's probably not going to happen, but the idea is nice. I wouldn't say it's any more or less vapid than the people who hit the share button on Facebook, you know? Eh. Kind of in the same vein. There's a lot, And there's a lot of vapid moves to do something about a lot of things, yeah. I think, in the last year and considering the internet. But I don't, there are some things where a lot of people don't know how to proceed, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I do think there's a sense of impotence in the world. And this album does convey that sense of impotence. Yeah. There are a lot of times where he turns so inward or he mentions these sporadic topical events with such a sense of, well, even with that, you know, God, if it's God's will. Well, really, that shouldn't be the reaction, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be, well, we should all take an active hand in this particular crisis that is unfolding? That almost seems like that's not really, <laughs> that shouldn't be the reaction. If it's God's will, well, God's will. But then maybe it's simply a comment on that particular mentality. It's more, re- it's more realistic. And I think I like the realism of it. And that this is how it manifests itself for the average Joe on a day-to-day basis, but I don't know whether that's necessarily helping everything, except maybe to have the exact discussion we're having right now and to say, maybe it's not so good. Well, that's still a, a success for me on an album, and I, I, it's not often that I would rate something higher for the social message, because really, this is a, a strange feeling for me. The music, I do think, is really subpar here. I think there's a lot of very bland pop songs here, um, minus the couple that are really, really, really good. And I think those are Heading South on the Great North Road and If You Can't Love Me, Side by Side, with a little little bit of Down, Down, Down. The rest kind of does gloss over me, but I'm not going to forget this discussion. That makes it kind of a Crash Chord-centric rating or a Crash Chord-centric listen because most people don't listen to music in this fashion. But then would we really be us if we were to argue for anything less and to expect for anything less amidst amidst the public eye. And I would say that um, we make this kind of content for ourselves, but also for people who do listen to music like this. And we do know there are people out there who listen to music like we do. So that's also not something to just dismiss, I feel like. All right. But I, I guess in conclusion, I am going to reel it back a little bit because there should have been something grabbier about this. Just at face value, there should have been, you listen, you have no information, right? You didn't do any research, you just heard the album in passing, and will it affect you? And I think the answer is unfortunately no. It's just a shame. And so I'm going to put this in the middle of the average album territory at about a 3.6 just a little bit above that mid-average, because I believe there's so much content here. I just wish he had been a little... For once, I believe he should have been a little flashier. The beginning of this album is really a drag, but it does get better. You have to stick with it. This album requires a big leap of faith, and it does require a knowledge and empathy of the modern world to a greater degree than most people have. Matt, you're going to... um be very happy that you inspired my my summation of this album with your Facebook comment. 
um, like your news feed, there's a lot of bits of information that show up there that you may like, you may not like, may impact your day, you may not, but at the end of the day, it just kind of washes past and then next day you're just going to get a whole new news feed and then the next day you're going to get a whole new news feed and very little of it is going to have bearing on your life very little of it is going to have impact on your life but like this album it can be thought-provoking like steve said and like we've actually had this episode it bears reflecting on these ideas on many of these ideas track two fifty thousand well Okay, 2016 sucked, and that, that track did a lot to explain why it sucked. Track four, One Fine Day, and the social commentary and the ecological commentary that it brings up in the discussion. Petrolhead and the kind of disparity between Petrolhead and Heading South is a great point, counterpoint, between both the United States and the UK, as well as the sort of different feels that the more adventurous America seems to have with the more tamed but still thought-provoking UK kind of a feel you have in our different versions of folk. Which I wish was the American track, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, all this, it has content that we can talk about, but the presentation feels like BuzzFeed. The presentation is catchy very quickly and immediately kind of washes itself away, which is kind of what BuzzFeed does, which is what Facebook News does, which is what's a kind of a big problem in our social media in general. I don't know why I see the parallels going on between the two, but I see them and I think that they were kind of intentional. I think that they were meant to be quickly impactful but maybe the long lasting that sting may have been going for is just lost on me so for that and for everything all the problems that i have with this album if it wasn't for the fact that it promoted this discussion it honestly would not even be a three if the content wasn't there it wouldn't be a three but the content is so i'm going to raise it just high at a 3.25 and honestly, in retrospect, I think some of my three fives might be lower because of this album. This album, I don't think, was any worse or any better than Paul McCartney's way back when. But that one, I think I gave like a three five. And honestly, it was it was not nearly as discussable as this album. I gave that a 3.25. Yeah. Marketedly lower than this for that exact reason. It's not. It wasn't discussable. It didn't. It would never stir this. And I would say the opposite, that those ratings were accurate for me, and this is a little better than that. Because while it's undeniable that at a 10,000-foot view, this is kind of a forgettable pop record, but I think if you are willing to dig deeper, if you are willing to be a little analytical or pay close attention, there's a lot to glean from this. I'm grateful that I brought something on worth discussing. I always like doing that. Um, sometimes it's to my surprise, sometimes it's not. But You were surprised. <laughs> I was definitely surprised here. But I think, you know, I, I do really like a lot of tracks here. I think they have something to say. Um, also, at the core of it, who are we to say what Sting should be contemplating at the age of 65 at this point in his life. I mean, realistically, if this is where his head's at and he wanted to condense it into a three-month recording session and get it out, then this is what it is. It's not that 
unlike when we recorded 50 by Rick Astley. You know, he said very candidly in his interviews also that 50 was about him turning 50 and him being absent from the music scene by choice for so long. Yeah, and I'll interrupt to say I, I almost derided, I feel like I was sort of secretly deriding the fact that he did this in three months. Mm-hmm. Like, I called it anti-perfectionism, because in general it is mostly my taste that I prefer if someone says they put the necessary time in. But he had purposely said, alright, I'm going to do this quick it needs to be quick mm-hmm. and it makes sense now this would not have been the same record had it taken any longer than that yeah like I think... it wouldn't be the topical record that it is it wouldn't be this smattering of of events yeah and so for me i think that really pushes this up the theme you can't argue that the theme is tight i mean even empty chair now that i think about it it's a work that was personally close to him. Obviously, he saw that documentary. It impacted him, so he helped construct a song that would be impactful. And even if it didn't impact us the same way it did him, there's something there that's very real and very candid, like the whole album has been. So I don't think it's even separate from everything else. Um, I just wish there was more to bring me back to it. I think the consistent agreement is the discussion will bring me back to this more than the actual album itself. But that said, like Steve just said, it was thrown out so it could be that kind of record. Here's a thing, take it in, and then move on. Look at the album title, 57th and 9th. We haven't come back to that ever since I mentioned it in the beginning. He's crossing the intersection. This is what's on my mind. Yeah. It's a different thing each time. Yeah. But that's the one constant in my life, is this one intersection at this moment, and however I'm feeling, and however complex it is. And so while I I may be at a loss for uh, specificity on why I'm rating it when I'm rating it, I think what I'm getting around to is that I feel more engaged with this than I have other average works, and that automatically makes it above average, because... Even if I don't listen to it again, I engaged with it this one time, which adds an artistry to the album that other albums of the like have not had. And so, for me, that's what makes this uh, an easy 3.6 for me. It's just a little bit above average. That said, had we not engaged in the discussion that we had, which again, I think we're all in agreement, it definitely would have been much lower. But I got something out of it. And at the end of the day, that's what music is about. We want to get something out of it. We want to feel connected somehow. I'll admit I didn't really get it, like get anything out of it, until we had this discussion. I think that is the primary problem I'm seeing with this. And I mean, that's a fair assessment. But I think that I did get something I'm just trying to explain why I'm lower than you two. (laughs) Because you suck. Well, I also, oh. I, I mean, it's just a common trend for me to rate things with social commentary so much higher, and I feel like I'm almost betraying my ideals. Well, it is, it is a really tough one, because also, the, I think the big thing holding me back is, on one hand, I like things that have more of a cohesive story. And this was such a smattering, you mm-hmm. know, it's all over the place. But then you think back to last year, and it's like, well, what should I be focused on more right now? There are so many different things to focus on. All of them seem important, and then in the end, you also have to come back to your own life. And it's exactly the trend that this album does. I mean, this is this is really a 2016 album. Like, I think you're right. I think it's the nail on the head. Like, la- I don't know how to call last year anything but a clusterfuck. Like, it was. It was absolutely just a cluster of 
ups and downs and highs and lows. And I will butt in to say that I, I think the the whole hashtag that sort of uh, entered in the vocabulary, well, I mean, concerning the year specifically, toward the end of the year and the way everybody just wanted to sort of wrap it up, I do think it ended up making us visualize last year as being a little more important than any other year. And of course, there's news events all the time. There's always stuff going on, but it's just it does seem more obvious when you consider the fact that everyone seemed to sort of realize that for the first time, this kind of mass, you know, switching on in many ways for better or for worse yeah i think it may be more that in 2016 we were all more self-aware than we'd ever been before yeah and i think that's a powerful thing regardless of how it came and yet not more effective in solving the world no not at all (laughs) and that's what the album discusses but on to something a little more lighter i'm going to take us back to 2016 and a homework assignment i had thrown out well at the end of the progger episode 222 you had previewed and you gave us homework and we did it. So this this is pretty uh, uh, light, and you guys can play along at home. But essentially, I wanted us to bring two genres each and an example of it that we discovered just by doing the homework. Could you find a genre that none of us have heard of? Essentially, you were inspired by Prager being this weird jazz prog fusion, which was a genre that you'd not been exposed to. So we were wondering, well, what else is out there? And can we shock each other with genres? And of course, this is in many ways a very easy assignment, because all you have to do is just search through the annals of the internet and the thousands of genres that have been labeled, even if it is by just a very small portion of the population that only think it exists in their little circle, someone else may call it something else, but there are some agreed-upon terms, and we're going to try to discuss them, mention a couple bands that follow through with them, and see if we can really blow each other's minds. And if you do want to play at home, remember, Spotify loves to subdivide, and I remember reading a specific article from, I think it was November 2015, that Spotify now had, at that moment, 1,350-plus different genrefications on their various repertoires of music. 1,300 plus genres. That's a lot. That's, that's but you like, have to think there's I, but it a also lot. doesn't shock me in any way. Yeah, and you have to think there is some overlap. Like, there are There probably is a lot, lot of fusion, but 1,300 is a lot, a lot of I bet there are a lot fusions. of hyphens and end dashes in there. I guarantee you. Well, there <laughs> were a few that we found that weren't quite that way, and one of the ones that I found, lowercase, and this one was really enticing for me because it was something I actually tried to do with Deep Chord and failed miserably with. Lowercase is the genre idea of taking really minimalistic ambient noise, anything from your computer running to paper rustling to, as one track is entitled, eight breaths of different lengths and making music out of that. It's sort of like an ASMR of music, though it may not be tingly, it will be the literal background noise of the of of life, done just a, into the hearing volume range, and it is an incredibly enticing idea for me, but also incredibly pretentious, and I love it for it. <laughs> I think all, most of these selections will have some level of pretentiousness to it, uh, because it does take that kind of artist to claim they've invented a genre, Uh, even as much of an independent project as you believe you are, normally people can at least, you know, say, well, hey, I I had my influences and they were generally from over here. And so they'll say, yeah, I'm kind of following through with that particular trend. But just to say outright that, nope, this is is my new thing. It's all mine. But but when's the last time you heard a track 
as entitled Eight Breaths of Different Lengths, which was just tones for 14 minutes, 28 seconds. Probably a, It's honestly, I listened to the entire thing. Probably a John it's, Cage piece. <laughs> it's honestly, I don't know whether I should love it or hate it. Like, it's that level of I don't know yet. And also, we should make it clear that the artists that we're mentioning for these genres may not be the progenitors of those genres. They may just be a specific example. No, specifically the track I'm talking about, it actually comes from uh, Steve Roden, who was the guy, a minimalist artist, who originally coined the term lowercase for this extreme form of, of, minimalism. of, of minimalism ambient music. Okay. If you find an article where the explanation of the genre is paired with the guy's own discography. That is, the progenitor is the greatest extent of that genre and probably will never be followed up upon in a direct fashion. Then look up Maxwell's Demon by Gen Thaltz. It's only two minutes and 22 seconds long, but it really is just ambient computer noises. Let's you do that as well, audience. Danger music. That's mine. I was going to use this one, too. He was really close to picking it. I noticed that at the end that he had actually had that as his other choice. And so I already had this written down. I'll, I'll just share a little bit about what danger music is. It's, um, I don't know if pretentious is the word. No, yeah, it is. It is. It's an experimental form of avant-garde uh, 20th and 21st century classical music. Though it claims it's classical music, but really... I think it could be a little bit of everything because it has a focus. It has a goal. And that goal is to harm you. <laughs> I'm dead serious. This is based on the concept that some pieces of music can or will or should I'm... harm the listener or the performer. Like, it's a form. It, this is performance art, really, at, at its core, because there are some crazy examples of some piece of music is about to begin and then. I think this was in Japan, a bulldozer crashes through the back of the stage and dismantles the performance. That's the art. Or I, I, I did like the reference to music that just gains intensity and volume over the course of times until it starts hurting the listener's ears. That's a common one, that it will purposely try to deafen you. And that you just willingly go into it being like, yeah, I'm going to get deaf through this. Yeah. Though I did see one performance where the guy was just sitting there yelling. I mean, I, I would an comment and say that nobody wants to listen to music that's going to harm them. But then again, mosh was, pits are a thing. So, like, sure. so it happens. This was this was actually kind of cool, like scary cool, but cool nonetheless. Yeah, there's uh, quite a few of these things that, well, they aren't as harmful. It feels like it could be an interesting experience. For one is, well, a, a phrase that I've heard for a long time: the endless search for the brown note. And are you aware of what that yes, is? Yes, and it's actually been proven that it doesn't exist. Yeah, Mythbusters busted it. Yeah. The idea that a, sing- that a certain note, perhaps a really, really deep note, can make you defecate in your trousers. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they, they try to reach it. Try as they might, but I guess they never reach it. But I, that must lead to some rather abrasive works in their search for it. Uh, th- all right, let me shoot out some names here. Uh, Hannah Tarish. I believe it's a Japanese group. Hannah Tarish is actually the one responsible for those really dangerous live shows, the one where the artist just drove the bulldozer through the venue at the back of the stage. Um, There's also reports of audience members being required to fill out waivers before going to these shows because no one wants to get sued. So basically, you sign that waiver, who knows what's going to happen to you? It could all theoretically be done under the guise of art. 
In fact, some people have referred to this blatantly as anti-music uh, because they just seem to be rebelling against the whole concept of music itself. So you think you're going to get a performance and then immediately someone tries to dismantle it and constantly revert you and send you running back in the other direction saying that wasn't a performance. And if you say that, then that was the goal. Sort of like uh, the Museum of Invisible Art. Yeah, I remember you saying yeah. you describing that whole thing in another one. So yeah, as long as it's invisible, as long as it's... They, they want you to gouge out your eyes. That's another way to put it. Everything horrible is danger music. Damn. In fact, danger music sums it up. I could have left it that. You probably could have. Uh, needless to say, my first choice of genre to bring up is probably going to be one of the more uh, believable ones and, <laughs> um, and less intense. But um, it's new jazz or... I like the other name for it, which is Jazztronica, which is clearly a fusion of jazz and electronica. Um, essentially, this is a term that was coined in the late 1990s to refer to music that blends jazz elements with other musical styles such as funk, soul, electronic dance music, and free improvisation. And so, you know, I have the band that really stood out to me was a band called Jazzanova, which I like because it's a play on Casanova. I've heard Jazzanova. And they I have can't think of where. One though. of the more recent songs is Another New Day, which I really dug. It's this, it's like if Skrillex and insert jazz musician here had a baby, essentially. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, just the concept of Jazztronica itself is not new to me. Yeah. I mean, really, we did Flying Lotus. I would consider him to be Jazztronica. Sure. I consider he jazz to be his biggest genre focus, but that most of the stuff really is, you know, spliced and diced, and it's intensely electronic. But uh, just, so you could take that in any number of ways, right? But just to name a few other bands that I looked up besides uh, Jazzanova, who I really dug and hope have a new album out in this next year, so I can review it. But uh, Alex Tronic was one of my favorite because it's Alex Tronic instead of Electronic. Uh -huh. Get it? Uh -huh. uh, Bonobo, DJ Red, some of the Flying Lotuses listed here. Oh, look at that! Um, you know, Gotan Project. Some of these names. Oh, Gotan Project will be familiar. Jazz Hole. And so, like, now, Gotan Project is a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Gotan Project is like some solid tango-rich uh, jazz. Yeah. I, I, uh, there were several albums of Gotan Project that I could not stop listening to over and over and over again. So, I, I'm getting some cues from John that he may be picking that soon. Uh, they were definitely in contention, and this is one of the two genres I was already looking at that. Um, uh, Storm specifically stole from me, which I let pass because I found cooler ones like lowercase. Well, maybe I'll pick it with that. All right. Well, why don't you tell us your other choice, John, for genres to amaze? If if I'm not mistaken, at least one of you is familiar with 303. Of course, I know yeah. 303. What genre would you call them? I don't know, like indie rap or rap rock or. There's a specific name for what they do, which I had no idea this was the name for it. Crunkcore. Or Skrunk. Yeah. I feel like Because of their Skrunk. origin roots from Krunk, which is actually where it comes from, which is a sort of uh, southern hip-hop, I guess. It's a more laid-back version of, of hip-hop. But because of the elements of emo they injected into it, um, or screamo in their case, it is called Skrunk. I ran across this word, and I was thoroughly entranced just with the idea of skrunk. Found out, though, that it was actually from somebody we've talked about a lot on this show. 
Panic at the Disco is the inspiration for this out this genre. Interesting. Back that, in the 05. If they were a little Everything bit, you just said would not have led me to think Panic at the Disco. Panic at the Disco and their their style when you mix in the emo heavily with the electronic hip hop beats take out the instruments and there you go you got yourself scrunk people are really being heavy-handed with the fusion stuff lately like down to the fusion of specific bands it's weird but like other things like family force 5 or blood on the dance floor which was another band i was familiar with uh or even like specific songs have been quoted like your love is my drug by kesha was considered scrunk Okay. I don't know. It's the combination of yelling, emo, and hip-hop beats. Okay. I'm, I'm getting a little closer to, to knowing what it is now, but I, I, I'm i not sure whether I've heard that word before. Crunk, I know crunk, but not scrunk. Crunkcore or scrunk. All right. Well, let's go to another weird word. Zoil. Or soil. Soil. Zoil. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's Z-E-U-H-L, but it's pronounced... Soil, like T-S-O-I-L. Maybe just say soil and leave it at that. Yeah, S-O-I-L. Jazz is a form of jazz fusion, and it does have a progenitor because really this is one of those cases where a band started doing it, everyone knew it for being the band's project, and it being somewhat unique to them, but ever since, there have been a few people that have followed in the band's footsteps. But it started off oh so pretentious. The The band's name was Magma. And they're a French band, uh, which was started by uh, Christian Vander, I believe, who actually created his own language to convey his conceptual universe. I mean, it would not be the first band we've talked about who had their own language. Did, That's um, right, Sigaros yeah. uh, had a little bit of it. But th- in this case, Zoil, right, that soil thing, is actually a word in his own made-up language. Uh, now you see the pretentiousness a little yeah, bit there. He made up a language in which, in which this word is a part. But anyway, it's not just simply jazz fusion. It's a dark and gloomy swing form of Coltrane-ish marches, Johnny Coltrane-ish marches, that swings and pivots to a wailing fusion opera in a matter of seconds. That's generally how it's described. Uh, it started off in the 70s, or at least Magma started off in the 70s, and I think they're still working. I think they're still doing music. But let me just read one quick uh, quote here that, I don't know, someone described about it. And I'm actually going to include his, uh, his hesitations in describing it. Zoil, soil, sounds like, well, about what you'd expect in alien rock opera with chanted choral motifs, martial and rep- rep- repetitive percussion, and sudden bursts of unexpected lapses into eerie minimalist trance rock to sound like. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that really does sound awesome. I sampled uh, them as well as a few of their successors, Honey Yelk and Music Noise. And, uh, oh, it's interesting. It actually is a, if you want to go further into the amount of things it fuses together, it's no. a mixture of musical genres like ne- neoclassicism, romanticism, modernism, fusion, and oppressive or discipline-conveying feel, that throbbing bass in ethereal piano, uh, and brass. And brass. And brass. Wow. Okay, well, I'm starting to sense a theme between the three of us because my final genre choice, which I'm John may have heard of, but I don't think Steve has, is called agrotech. I know agrotech. And when agrotech, you mentioned that, I thought it was agricultural. 
Yes. Uh, music. No, it has like, nothing to do with about silos and combines. No, this is aggro as in aggressive. Um, and this is a derivative of electronica, but it's 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 more focused in the darker vein as we've been talking about. Mm. Um, defined on Wikipedia, so I'll lift it straight from there. Agrotech tip typically employs aggressive beats, prominent lead synth lines, and lyrics of a dark nature. Often vocals are distorted and pitched shifted to sound harsh and synthetic. And uh, one of the bands that I listened to specifically that actually was really interesting was X-Fusion and their song Stroke by Stroke. But just to name a few other bands in the genre, just to give a plethora of choices for our listeners to follow up with, there's Panic Lift, Reaper, which I have heard of. Reaper I've heard before. Dawn of Ashes, Detroit Diesel, um, Agonize, I like that one. Alien Vampires also, because why not aliens or vampires, just alien vampires. Hmm. Uh, Virtual Embrace, which I actually really think is a cool name. And Ritual, Ritual Aesthetic, just to name a few. I know both Ritual Aesthetic and Detroit Diesel. Because mm. I am a little bit, like, very, very little familiar with this. And it yeah. was one of the ones, but we specifically said it was going to be genres we didn't know. So when well, I if started discovering... Ca- if that's the case, then then you, you lost, Matt. Because we were both able to pinpoint at least some bands from separate uh well, I, 303 was almost a cop-out when I found out that, that, yeah, that Skrunk a, was a thing. Technically, he half-fell, too, because I knew the band. I just didn't know they were yeah. crunk-core. And me and John kind of tied because we both discovered um, yeah. Danger Music at the exact same time, only because of but this it, exact I wouldn't call that a tie. I'd call that losing. You forgot something else about <laughs> Agrotech, and that it's not just heavy on the beats, but if I'm not mistaken, it is high on the BPMs as well, where it's like 150-plus beats per minute. Didn't say that which anywhere, is like but I believe you. ridiculous, if wait, I'm not say, wait, how, say how many again? One 50 plus like That's 150 not crazy. to 170 not crazy no 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 but with a kick drum um, with just a kick drum not an actual oh, synthetic oh, one. Oh, yeah. No, that is crazy. Well, you yeah. need double pedal. Double pedal. Well, well it, it's electronica. It, it's kind of like electronica meets death metal and then... Oh, and also depends on, like, exactly how many quavers he's cramming into it. It's not... Just to say 150 BPM is not as important as if it's he's doing, like, 64th notes at 150 BPM. Yeah, yeah no, that's crazy. the sort of things they start okay. throwing in there. Yeah, death metal. Oh, dear. Death metal eats electronica. Yeah. Oh, dear. So, um, I would say if you get run over by a bulldozer at a concert by the artist you came to see, you lost. <laughs> yeah. I would agree. Well, um, or or you can have music that's literally this. And a bat in the distance. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, all the all the different genres we came up with. Uh, they're all interesting ideas. It's ideas. Honestly, I didn't even hear of four out of these. Six. Uh, I only know it was Jastronica because that was one of my shortlist in Agrotech. I knew. Because that was something I was actually briefly into. But these are all, like, out-of-left-field kind of ideas. You know what? This pushed me to places on the internet that even if I don't choose the uh, bands that we suggested specifically, I will choose something probably in that department. I think we should have I'm not doing a danger. good... Not danger. No. But at least a good balance of, you know, our big greatest hits, as in today, and also the Yugans of the world. Right. And I think that this exercise allowed us to dig deeper into that end of it. Yeah. Um, please, audience, feel free to play along. If there were... Um, Genres that you discovered that you don't think we know, please recommend an album. We uh, love album recommendations as we do them as frequently as we can. And also be sure to get involved with the Fluxus School of Composition, which is a thing <laughs> associated with Dick Higgins, who has composed a series of works entitled Danger Music. Oy. And then there's things like Schrons or Mathcore 
or chiptune. Well, I skipped over chiptune chip because everyone yeah, knows that. Everyone yeah. knows chiptune. No, tune. not everybody knows chiptune. I, I know personal. I know. We an know. Artist. And just like we know nerdcore because it's also within our wheelhouse. No, Matt was going to say that we personally know a person who is involved in making yes. chiptune chip music. Yes. But these are these are actual, like, mathcore is one of the genres that I know nobody's really heard of until they start listening to me talk about it. Yes. Um, but again, I think this exercise mostly served as a place for us to divert our attentions that are not just the mainstream things we tend to pull out sometimes. Well, um, we are going into something that is not particularly mainstream, although he has made appearances in main, mainstream locales. But before we get to that, please, Steve, do you have a spam mail? No. What? Of course I don't, because we have an actual mail. Oh, that's right. The mail that is recommending the exact album that I was about to preview. That is right. I got it all covered, Matt. I got it covered. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Doug Ferguson of Music A to Z. Our favorite West Coasters Music A to Z, of which Doug Ferguson is one half a member, has given us another uh, recommendation. Uh, He posted it on Twitter back in December, and I said we're going to do it the second episode of the year. Well, well, we had that the big week-long event, the the five-day episode event, so technically he's falling as the seventh episode of the new year, but we know where our seasons lie, and that is always... 25, 75, 25, 75, as far as our review season is concerned. So yes, he it was always the plan that his recommendation would fall at episode 227, and that is exactly where he is falling. So just to be consistent and all. So he actually said, would you guys be interested in reviewing Chambers by Chili Gonzalez? Think you guys will like it. Um, Chambers by Chili Gonzalez. Well, Chili Gonzalez... as I said, he's popular in certain circles. It's a little unorthodox for us because finally... Finally, we're getting to do a, I want to say, proper classical album. It's chambers, as in chamber-ish work. Mm-hmm. And he is sort of a chamber <laughs> musician. He he's from Montreal, although he lives in France. And he's had a lot of collaborations, though. Like he's done a lot of uh, instrumental or, or classical support work with other big musicians. He's worked with Feist. He was actually on Random Access Memories. I don't know exactly where, but he's done... <laughs> he's there was there. a lot of opportunities in which we can imagine him appearing on sure. that particular album by Daft Punk, of course. So, yeah, he's collaborated, and this is his own thing. It is from last year, I believe. Uh, it was either 2015 or 2016, but, yep, Chambers by Chili Gonzalez. It's oh. not the first time we did classical. We did do Search Tankian. And Orca. his work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know. It was, <laughs> I kind of dismissed He was really whelmed by that handily. Album. For sure. Um, well, Whelming. Doug, of course, as always, thank you for writing in to uh, suggest something. We're happy to take it on. Um, and one of these days, we'll have uh, both of you gentlemen of Music A to Z on this podcast. I don't know how, but we'll figure it out. But anyway, on that note. By Aerogyro. By Aerogyro, yes, exactly. Always. On that note, um, Thanks for listening as always. Looking forward to a new season. And remember, music is life and life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.